This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Polity Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The End of Sovereignty by Antonio Negri, translated by Ed Emery. The End of Sovereignty is the second volume in a new trilogy by the Marxist theorist Antonio Negri. A follow-up to his book, Marx in Movement, Negri develops and defends his view of the modern state as a despotic and oppressive power. In contrast to those on the left who accept the state as inevitable, Negri makes the case that we need to be done with the sovereign state imposed on us by the capitalist organization and bourgeois society, which he argues has become a weapon in the hands of a declining ruling class. Abolishing the state, in Negri's view, is the utopian core of a radical politics of liberation. The End of Sovereignty by Antonio Negri. Out now from Polity Press. Learn more at politybooks.com. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is episode three of our four-part series on the history of modern Iran, with Eskandar Siddiqui, Borajerdi, and Gulnar Nikpor. We pick up where the last episode left off, in the wake of the U.S.-British orchestrated 1953 coup against Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh, a coup carried out because Iran had dared to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company. The result was the reinstallation of Mohammad Reza Shah as dictator in all but name. The Shah picked up where he had left off, this time with his nationalist opponents in the National Front and communist opponents in Tudeh crushed. Back in power, the Shah intensified the construction of a more profoundly authoritarian and repressive regime, a regime that would be a key pillar of U.S. power in the region. That intensified repression, however, was complemented by a grand attempt at manufacturing consent which accelerated in 1963 with the launching of the Shah's White Revolution, intended to be a revolution from above that would preempt revolution from below and bind Iranians to the regime and to the person of the Shah. The White Revolution included mass literacy campaigns and, also critically, land reform. But the contradictions of the White Revolution, particularly of land reform, ultimately laid the groundwork for the Islamic Revolution that would overthrow the Shah in 1979. While many peasants did receive small holdings, many more did not. And millions of newly proletarianized peasants filled peripheral slums on the outskirts of cities like Tehran. The Shah's attempt to preempt rural revolution would, ironically, create the conditions for an urban revolution that would end his rule and install Khomeini as supreme leader. As peaceful efforts to reform the Shah's regime were repressed over the years, dissident politics radicalized, a dissidence that encompassed a wildly diverse set of political actors from armed leftist movements and new political syntheses of Shiism and socialist third-worldism to Islamists rallying around the radical cleric Ruhollah Khomeini. They were united in their opposition to the Shah, who they brought down in the Islamic Revolution in 1979. And that revolution, in all of its complexity, is where we end this third episode. 
But the opposition, united against the Shah, was divided on much else. By 1979, the Shah had brutally repressed the left. The clergy were repressed too, but nowhere near as brutally. Their seminaries, mosques, and religious networks remained intact. After mass protests ousted the Shah, a period of uncertainty and openness followed under the provisional Islamic revolutionary government. But Khomeini quickly consolidated power, creating a system known as the guardianship of the Islamic jurist that would place unelected clerics above democratically elected leaders, with Khomeini sitting at the very top. Mandatory head coverings for women were steadily imposed, replacing the Shah's authoritarian, but in some notable respects modernizing, state feminism with a new Islamist regime of gendered social control, legality, and segregation. We'll pick up soon in our fourth and last episode of this series, in the aftermath of the revolution, when Khomeini's Islamists bloodily repressed the radical left and confronted Saddam Hussein's invasion from Iraq, and then take us all the way to the present moment of crisis. One note on a name that comes up in the interview that might require a little more context. Ali Amini, a former member of Mossadegh's cabinet who had resigned in July 1952. He would go on to serve as prime minister under the Shah from 1961 to 62 and as Iran's ambassador to the U.S. The key significance of Amini's time as prime minister was that it was a moment of brief and relatively mild political opening, one that the Shah quickly put an end to, and which was followed by the White Revolution and increasingly brazen concentrations of power that were characterized by many observers as megalomaniacal. Okay, before I ask you to support this podcast financially, I'd like to ask you to support it rhetorically. Please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps more listeners find the podcast. And if you like this Iran series, please share it on Instagram, TikTok, or on Twitter before Musk kicks you off. But also, please do make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig to keep this podcast up and running strong. I'm sure I'm missing something out there, but no other podcast that I know of keeps itself running as a full-time operation through voluntary contributions. We pay well nothing, and we'll always keep it that way because we want everyone to listen, regardless of your ability to pay. That is really important to the political mission of the podcast, which is the primary reason I do this podcast. But that said, we do have to keep the lights on. We will also send you our weekly newsletter for a contribution of any amount, and we'll send you a book or books in the mail, or a dig tote bag or a dig mug, fine-looking merch, for a contribution of $10 or more a month. If you can afford to contribute, make a contribution now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. The link is in the show notes. Okay, here's part three of my interview with Eskander Siddiqui Borajerdi and Golnar Nikpur. Watch our podcast feed for the last episode in our four-part series on modern Iran. We'll be putting it out sometime in the next week. Eskander Siddiqui Borajerdi is a professor of contemporary politics and modern history of the Middle East at Goldsmiths College, University of London. He is the author of Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran associate editor of the journal Politics, and co-edits Radical Histories of the Middle East. 
Golnar Nikpour is a professor of history at Dartmouth College with an interest in histories of law, incarceration, and rights in modern Iran. She is currently finishing her first book project, A History of Iranian Prisons and Carcerality in a Global Context, is on the editorial collective for the journal Radical History Review and co-edits Radical Histories of the Middle East. We closed out the last episode discussing the 1953 U.S.-British joint coup against Mohammad Mossadegh, which reinstalled the Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. How did the Shah move to consolidate power in the coup's wake? And specifically, how did he go about increasing the size, power, and also reach of the military and domestic policing forces, including secret policing forces? And then... In what ways did Mohammad Reza Shah's state repressive apparatus building project, in what ways did that relate to or build off the one undertaken by his deposed father? So um, following the coup, obviously, Mossadegh is arrested. Um, He is put on trial. He is obviously unrepentant. Um, And this obviously just further kind of elevates him and sort of transforms him into the nationalist icon um, an anti-colonial icon um, that he already was, but this really sort of enshrines him. And then he is placed under house arrest in Ahmedabad, a village of, of his village, until 1969 uh, when he dies. But in the immediate aftermath of the coup, General Zahedi comes to power. He becomes the prime minister. Um, very, very quickly, the Eisenhower administration uh, moves to stabilise the government, which obviously had been cut off from uh, all revenues because of basically this naval um, blockade. It becomes the immediate recipient of emergency aid. And rather quickly, um, um, and again, I think a lot of this was down to Cold War considerations because uh, the Eisenhower administration and the Dulles brothers were quite concerned uh, about the instability of the regime. So very quickly, they sort of pressure the oil majors to conclude a consortium agreement in 1954 and a 50-50 sort of all profit sharing um, agreement that was already seen in um, the cases of Saudi Arabia and Venezuela um, and so on. But basically management and production would be firmly in control of the oil company. So there was, in a sense, this quite nominal acknowledgement that the oil industry belonged to Iran, but really control and production very much in the hands of the oil companies. And just to emphasize, this is just after the Dulles brothers had orchestrated a coup against Mossadegh for daring to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company. Now they're kind of being like, well, you know, here's, here's some nominal recognition of your claims to your own oil. Exactly. I mean, they had recognized the power of Iranian nationalism um, so again, it was sort of the symbolic uh, acknowledgement, but real power lied elsewhere. Um, but then very quickly, and part of this strategy, they moved to obviously consolidate a very sort of um, build up a repressive um, security apparatus in the form of the Savak, um, which I then I think, you know, Golnar maybe can speak to in more detail. Yeah, so Eskandar mentions a lot of the immediate moves to consolidate and sort of stabilize the Shah's government and to immediately uh, sort of disempower and arrest members of the National Front. This wouldn't be all. Uh, And of course, the most 
I think, famous or maybe infamous is the better word, uh, government organization that comes out of the post-coup restructuring is the Shah's new intelligence service, um, which is called SAVAK. SAVAK is an acronym for the uh, which is essentially the intelligence and security organization of the country. So that is formally founded in 1957 under the direct supervision of the CIA and with help from Israeli Mossad. Uh, eventually, Savak grows to being an enormously feared secret police force and has by the time of the revolution, something like 5,000 agents, uh, like official agents, um, but untold numbers of informal informants. Um, Savak becomes enormously feared throughout society. I mean, I could tell you some of the, the statistics, but I think in some ways, thinking about Savak more as the sentiment that it produces among ordinary Iranians is just as telling, right? So there is a sense that builds and builds over the next 20 years that you are being surveilled at all times at your place of work. There might be, you know, people that you might know, even your own family member might be a, a Savak informant. So the idea that the Savak represents the the eyes and ears of the Shah and has worked its way, wormed its way into the nooks and crannies of all sort of civil life across the country. And not only in the country, because Savak is also responsible for an enormous amount of repressive policing outside of the country, uh, policing dissidents um, in Europe and the United States in ways that are uh, sometimes quite scary. It's also, of course, it's not only an internal sort of um, repressive apparatus. It also functions as a kind of external paramilitary type force in, in regional contexts. So it's it has quite a widespread um, application. But I should just mention, you know, where a little bit more about where the organization comes from. Again, as I said, it is trained by the CIA and by Israeli Mossad. Uh, U.S. Army uh, colonel initially uh, working with the CIA starts as early as 1953 to work with uh, General Taimur Bakhtiar, who's the uh, military governor of Tehran. Um, they're founding the, uh, the sort of nucleus of this new intelligence operation. Now, there had been intelligence police before 1953, but this was a new and more intensive uh, operation. Eventually, in 1955, the person who is sent from the U.S. to be kind of in charge of Training Savak personnel is Norman Schwarzkopf, General Norman Schwarzkopf, who Stormin Norman, yeah, Stormin Norman, a person I think well known to those who have a, a you know sort of sense of late twentieth century American military uh, history. You know, under Schwarzkopf, the U.S. trains the first couple of generations of Savak agents. It's really not until about a decade later that Savak starts training its own personnel, that it has been trained enough by U.S. personnel to then be in charge of its own training. I also want to mention something that's a little bit less well-known than Savak. I think Savak is, among Iranians at least, uh, absolutely a household term, uh, regardless of one's political persuasion, like everyone knows what Savak is. But the, Savak is not the only policing a uh, force that is trained and, in fact, funded by the by the U.S. at this time. In 1959, the U.S. Army sent a another mission to the U to Iran, led by a less well known figure by the name of Colonel Charles McLean Peake. And Peake is 
charged with reforming and training the uh, imperial gendarmerie uh, and also the Iranian national police force and also um, sort of restructuring the um, prison system to some extent. And he doesn't work directly in prisons, but he's working with the police and um, security figures who are working in prisons, right? So it's it's kind of a wholesale new approach to policing and uh, intelligence. So Savak is on the intelligence side. Peak is working with uh, sort of civilian police, but also the gendarmerie. And he's training specifically what they're working on, um, funding and training is riot control in the provinces and across the country. So whereas Savak is well known in part because the people that they're policing are intellectuals, dissidents, activists who write about their experiences with Savak, and that kind of leads to a broad kind of cultural understanding of Savak being in 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 every cultural and political and civic space. But there's also, as I said, this this big sort of push to train all of the different armed forces in Iran in, in these new new forms of crowd management is the euphemism they use. But it's essentially riot control for when there are protests. You know, this is something that I, I write about in my work is that interestingly, that what Peak is talking about and what the Iranian police start talking about in this time is that these are more humane methods of policing and interrogation and they're they're doing all of these new sort of more progressive humane forms of policing and incarceration. So they're using a language of reform across the board in prisons and policing structures. They're starting to use the language of reform, but it's entirely towards sort of repressing social forces that are considered dangerous to the Shah. I should also note that Savak goes into labor unions, is very much sort of inserting itself into labor unions. Now, remember, in the pre-coup moment, there are these huge strikes. And the Tudeh party had worked to organize uh, certain industries. But even beyond beyond that, there were a number of industrial strikes. Well, in the aftermath of the coup, the Shah continues to use the 1931 anti-communist law to further crush the Tudeh. But Savak also creates new labor organizations through the labor ministry that are meant to sort of disallow the forms of labor organizing that had existed in the decade and a half prior. So we see this with this total crash in numbers of of the of how many strikes there are. If there are, I don't know, tens, dozens of strikes in the early years of the 50s and late 40s, by 55 to 57, even before the formal sort of founding of Savak, there is a radical decline in the number of strikes that, that's happening. And that has to do with the new intelligence, this kind of nascent intelligence service going into the labor uh, labor ministry and forming these new ways of minimizing labor, uh, labor organizing across the country. So we see all of these different forms of repression at the same time. Um, and the vast expansion of the police forces as well. So again, you know, we, we tend to exceptionalize Savak in some ways. And it is important, extremely important to talk about. But even the sort of so-called ordinary forms of policing become very intensively about um, controlling social connections between Iranians. The Shah's rule was obviously a dictatorship, but I but I imagine that he didn't advertise it uh, as such. What, what sort of nominal democratic rights and powers remained under the Shah? How did the state and government actually function? And what were people's supposed and then actual rights vis-a-vis that state? 
Yeah, that's a terrific question. And I think actually it's important to note here that the Shah's approach and even his rhetoric um, shifts from the post-coup period through the 50s, 60s, and up to, you know, the sort of lead up to the revolution. What I mean is that if we think of the height of the Shah's sort of authoritarian tendencies being manifested in the creation of basically enforced one-party rule in the mid-1970s in Iran, where uh, this sort of nominal two-party apparatus and and kind of nominal ability to remain outside of the purview of politics crumbles and the Shah is basically kind of, he's really feeling himself by that point. You know, the, the repressive wing of the state has eliminated his enemies as far as he's concerned and he is just feeling like on top of the, on the world, he starts demanding to be called uh, Aryameh, Light of the Aryans. And, and it's just a kind of a moment of, scholars sometimes call it megalomania. If that's how he's feeling by the mid-1970s, um, then 1953 is a totally different situation. And even leading up to the late 50s and early 60s, it's it's a different situation. I think you can see this what in his writing, some of his writings in the 1960s. In 1961, he even writes at one point and says a couple of times that if the constitutional government becomes strong enough and if the reforms he's invested in undertaking become strong enough, he, you know, he wouldn't oppose the eventual sort of uh, receding or even dissolution of the role of the Shah. Now, I think it's debatable at best if he meant it. I mean, I don't, I don't think we can assume that he was really feeling like my role here is to bring democratic governance and, and true constitutionalism to the country. On the contrary. But he's still speaking in terms of constitutional authority. He's still speaking in terms of the need for a, a sort of electoral system. And he's willing to at least rhetorically minimize his role uh, at certain moments when he thinks it will benefit him. There's still technically the same constitution on the books as the one that had been won in the constitutional revolution in the early part of the 20th century. There's still a parliament and there's this nominal kind of uh, rule by constitutional monarchy. At the same time, all of this new sort of repressive um, state building is happening. The Shah and some of his closest advisors start thinking in terms of how they can build up some kind of uh, affection for the Shah in ways that might mimic other nationalist leaders around the world, but leaders with anti-colonial bona fides. So there's there's a, in the archive all these records of, of the Shah's advisors, p- particularly an important figure by the name of Asadullah Alam, talking about the need to sort of create a some sort of narrative around the Shah that will make him look more like a figure like Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt or uh, that kind of of strong nationalist with some kind of anti-colonial bona fides, right? So there's a lot of different sort of things at work at this period. And and there are a lot of different rhetorical strategies as well as, as deep sort of structural strategies for strengthening what in 1953 is ultimately an extremely unpopular and fragile government. Like you just said, Golnar, the, the, the Shah, above all else, was trying to undermine what he saw as the key threats to his rule, the Tuda and the National Front. And one response, is, as we were discussing, was repression. But another, as you just began 
to lay out was the attempt to construct an image of the Shah as a more legitimate sort of nationalist leader, someone like Nasser. And a key part of this was the White Revolution, a form you mentioned to me earlier uh, in a conversation prior to these interviews, Eskandar, a form perhaps of what Gramsci called passive revolution that aimed to build a corporatist regime that would use massive oil revenues to modernize the economy and society in such a way that it would bind people to the state and thus preempt revolution from below. What was the Shah's program for building what he called a great civilization in Iran? And how did it simultaneously and seemingly pretty contradictorily um, draw on left-wing ideas while also being, above all else, a tool to preempt the left? And then lastly, how did this these efforts to manufacture consent relate to that entire project of repressive institution building that we've been discussing? So, I mean, as we saw um, in previous conversations that we've had, um, land reform has been a demand going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century, and it was probably made by social democrats and socialists of various hues. So this was very much a long-standing demand. It is one that has been um, articulated and re-articulated in different um, ways. And this, again, was very much more broadly um, a demand which was we saw across um, the global south in predominantly sort of agrarian societies. But then when we sort of hit the beginning of the 1960s, um, I guess there were multiple things that happened. There's these long-standing grassroots and political mobilizations around land redistribution. So that's one thing which has been ongoing and it's been a constant um, sort of challenge to the Shah and the Shah's legitimacy. And especially when we recall that his um, father appropriated huge amounts of land in Mazandaran, his home province, uh, but there are also more, you could say, conventional politicians, people like Hassan Arsanjani, who is by no means um, anti-establishment, but you know, modernizers, we could say, within the Iranian system, who very clearly understood or saw the condition of the peasant as an outrage. They saw it as actually really uh, a condemnation of um, the status quo, and therefore were, were themselves also committed very much to to a kind of reform agenda and trying to better the lot of the, the peasantry. And Hassan Arsene Journey is just such an example. Um, another another actually interesting uh, sort of take on this, actually, so we spoke previously about Khalil Maliki, um, the socialist who had actually broken uh, with the Tudor party and then became a very, very harsh critic of both the Soviet Union and the Tudor party, really probably one of, you could say one of their sworn enemies of the Tudor party. And one of the ironies or um, something that actually happens in this period because of this disillusionment with um, the Tudor party and the Soviet Union, people like Khalil Maliki and his brother, uh, Hossein Malik, start looking to other ways in which agriculture had actually been socialized. Um, and they actually start looking to the Israeli state uh, and the kibbutz model. Um, Whoa. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as, a, as an alternative model. 
And they actually made trips there, as did Arsène Jani, and they meet with Golda Meir and various other Israeli politicians. And they see this as actually a model to be um, imitated in the context of Iran. So this is just to give you an idea of sort of the broad sweep of discussions, both at more radical challenges from amongst the Tudor party to more sort of reformist approaches, people like Hassan al-Sanjani and people like Khaled Maliki, socialists. And similarly, at the same time, uh, we have the, you know, the coming to power of the Kennedy administration and the broader Cold War, the global Cold War context, and very much an awareness since, I guess, the Chinese Revolution that uh, peasant insurgencies and sort of lack of reform, agrarian reform, posed a major political danger and could actually very much result in this sort of mass politicization of the peasantry and further cause destabilization. And very much it was sort of conditions that could be, you know, ripe for exploitation by communists and left-wing um, forces. And again, this is ideologically very much aligned with, you know, uh, Walter Rostow's famous sort of concept of like modernization theory, uh, the fact that all these society, all societies in the developing world had to undergo this very linear transformation from being sort of peasant agrarian societies to being sort of modern urban um, societies very much modeled on 50s um, USA basically. So that was another sort of uh, component to which obviously many um, of the Shah's technocratic supporters or people very much who were part of the regime were very much on board with. And this is the Kennedy administration's Alliance for Progress Politics in Latin America. Exactly, which we see, we see a kind of iteration of that uh, in the Iranian context. And this then leads to the arrival on the scene of Ali Amini, who is actually, I believe he's the grandson of Mozaffaruddin Shah, the, the Shah who famously signed the constitution. So very much an establishment politician. He was actually in the post-coup government um, as well. He, he was the minister of economic affairs. And he was also a former ambassador to the United States in Washington. Um, so very much an establishment figure, but he was seen as a modernizing figure within the regime. He was seen as the United States kind of chosen candidate Comments from the Shah very much show that the Shah saw him as such. And because the Shah, to some extent, was facing challenges um, from elsewhere and various fronts, he sort of gives this sort of experiment of an internal modernizer, as it were, um, a chance. And Arsan Jani, Hassan Arsan Jani, the person I was just speaking about, becomes the Minister of Agriculture in this and wants to pursue uh, the sort of reform agenda, particularly obviously agrarian reform. And we haven't obviously reached the White Revolution yet, but it sort of lays the ground for the White Revolution because in the Amini period, which is very brief, it's from 1961 to 1962, just about a year, just under a year maybe. And under that government, we do see the re-emergence of the National Front in the so-called Second National Front. And we see a huge rally in the Stadium of Jalalia of like 100,000 people in support of um, the National Front and kind of, um, and so this desire to see an opening on the political front in elections. Amini, though, has a sort of his own plans. He says, sort of, I have to pursue certain reforms before we can sort of enter in the political conversation at the same time that the National Front is trying to pressure him and saying, no, actually, we need to have all of this together in order for it to actually be meaningful in any sense. And ultimately, yes, the, the Amini government uh, becomes unstuck. The Shah sort of sweeps in and then really co-opts this agenda, really. But then also he defangs and actually uh, many of the probably the more radical elements of it. And then obviously, as we can maybe speak in terms of his execution, it actually ends up sowing the seeds of his demise in certain ways, you could argue. So, I mean, when the Shah sort of takes charge 
of the white revolution. It very much becomes um, his agenda. He's sort of presenting himself as a quote-unquote revolutionary monarch. This is, again, goes back to what Golnar was saying about trying to present himself as a, as a nationalist leader, as someone sort of in the age of the sort of global Cold War who can compete with the Nasser's Obviously, the you know the Ho Chi Minhs and all these sorts of things, and he's trying to kind of co-opt that while obviously reconstitute, recalibrate, reconfigure his power and sort of forge this new corporatist kind of order. We're still quite a way um, off of that, but obviously it's the white revolution because it's opposed to any idea of a red revolution. Um, I think that needs to be really, really clear. And as I said, it's about neutralizing any kind of threat from the peasantry. Actually, one of its sort of major um, objectives was to create a class of smallholder peasants that would really become a fulcrum of the regime. That was kind of the ambition, you could say, um, and really what he aspired to. And uh, apart from obviously land reform, there were various other things. There was the enfranchisement of women, uh, they got the vote, but obviously in a sort of increasingly dictatorial system, uh, the meaning of that vote uh, became sort of, I guess, increasingly negligible. Um, So that's obviously one thing. There were sort of commitments to increasing literacy. So there was something called the Sepahid Danesh. So actually sending the literacy corps, sending young people who maybe were doing their military service and whatnot into the countryside to try and educate villagers. There was even a version of it called the Sepahidin. So like actually it was sort of um, propagating increasingly kind of a, a state approved, state sanctified version of um, religion and Islam. And I think it's important to actually note that the white revolution was definitely a co-optation, a form of passive revolution, sort of taking very, making various concessions towards left-wing demands in order to reconstitute or sort of, in a sense, consolidate the Shah's grip and sort of, in a sense, double down on the more autocratic elements of the regime. But there were also elements such as the women's enfranchisement. And also, um, for instance, in terms of court trials, um, people were allowed to swear on books or holy books other than the Quran. So there was this sort of dual element. So on the one hand, land reform seemingly had some positive consequences. So it did actually redistribute land to about, if I remember correctly, 1.6 million or so peasants. But the problem with it is that basically for every single family which received a viable plot of land which could be self-sustaining, three didn't. So basically what happened ultimately is that productivity actually declined after agriculture declined after the right revolution, you see this sort of mass proletarianization simply because many of these peasants who were meant to become independent farmers just simply couldn't sustain their livelihood. They couldn't support their families. And so what you actually had was sort of massive sort of increases in impoverishment uh, and deprivation um, in the countryside. And then, like I said, this influx of uh, millions of peasants into sort of shanty towns in like the south of Tehran and other kind of major cities. And obviously this would become very significant at the time of the revolution because many of these sort of many of these individuals who sort of, you know, this influx into the city end up becoming politicized and having a role in the overthrow of the Shah. So, you know, the white revolution has this kind of mixed balance sheet. And this is obviously speaks to its sort of its its character as a form of passive revolution, which did actually, you could say, co-opt and did make certain concessions, did have certain, you could say, quote, unquote, progressive elements, but actually proved um, very much corrosive to sort of both the Shahs and what he had initially had envisioned and obviously his grip um, on, on sort of development subsequently. So, yeah, it's, it's a very kind of complex, I would say, multifaceted process. Where specifically did 
the status of women in society fit into the Shah's political project. There, this combination of these these gestures at economic modernization combined with making a performance of easing the hold of Islamist strictures on women reminds me a lot of of MBS today, Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah, um, that's that's a interesting comparison. I think for the Shah, at least initially, the question of women's enfranchisement is not the primary one that he is invested in when it comes to reform. It's so I mean he he is very much thinking about land reform first in large part because that's where the energy is on the part of the Amini government and the more radical demands for land reform that Eskandar laid out. And the Shah is really, really keen on not only on uh, being seen as a sort of progressive, enlightened, modern constitutional monarch, but in making sure he gets the credit for the reform. I mean, this is part of the the frustration he has with the Amini government. You know, Amini is using the language of the white revolution in 61 and 62. He's using that phrase. He's talking about the need to sort of undercut uh, what he calls reactionary forces, including the large landowners, uh, some of whom are members of the ulama. So the Shah wants to come in and sort of make sure he's getting the credit for those reforms. And women's enfranchisement in some, on some level has the same structure as does the other reforms of the white revolution, where there are independent organized efforts on the part of, in some cases, on the part of independent women's organizations and and fem, sort of feminist or proto-feminist, depending on what language you think sort of fits these organizations more clearly. And the Shah and the government is keen to absorb that as well, um, absorb the the sort of critiques that he's receiving um, and also to defang the more radical demands that are being made. So at the time of the White Revolution, women's enfranchisement is added as one of the first six points. So in the in the first iteration of the White Revolution that the Shah makes, uh, which he launches by decree, he he it's a six-point program at first. By the time of the revolution, it had been expanded to 17 points. Uh, sort of, so every kind of reform is is you know this all, everything in the sort of statist reformist imaginary is folded into the white revolution, and women's enfranchisement is part of that. And again, it's it's this kind of exactly as Eskandar sort of articulated with the left. It's part of this strange kind of push and pull between the Shah and the more radical demands that are coming from leftist organizations, from left nationalists, from anti-colonial nationalists, and from women's organizations for certain rights, including including not only enfranchisement, but, I mean, beginning in the late 19th and into the 20th century, there are organized women's movements demanding greater access to education, um, greater access to uh, so all kinds of social betterment, right? And, and the White Revolution actually does have the effect of, in the absolute sense, improving all of these markers for things like overall literacy rates, um, overall sort of life expectancy rates, uh, the life expectancy rates of pregnant women, infant mortality rates. In the overall sense, it improves a lot of these markers. Again, the question is the extent to which some of those demands are defanged and folded into a statist project. The figure that is most associated with the state feminism that comes out of the white revolution period is the Shah's very powerful and 
uh, sort of famous twin sister, Ashraf Pahlavi, who comes to sit on a number of uh, women's rights and human rights uh, organizations and delegations, both in the country and internationally. So she becomes uh, the Iranian delegate at an, working with the UN on issues of human rights and, and women's rights. You know, she becomes a kind of international figure in some sense, promoting this vision of state feminism. I think this links in some ways to something else I wanted to emphasize about this period, which is we really have to understand the white revolution. I don't think it's enough to understand it. Um, and I, I think Eskander's response alludes to this as well. It's, it's not enough to understand it simply as a matter of economic or social or political reform. It is those things. It is a very clear effort in line with some of the promoted concepts of the Kennedy administration to try to defang the possibility of a red revolution, again, a communist revolution, by sort of meeting some of the demands of the opposition. But it's also an effort to create a kind of myth history around the Shah, a kind of political culture around the Shah of a kind of enlightened, modern, nationalist monarchy so to try to fuse the idea of monarchy and modernization, that Pahlavism is precisely a modern form of political structure. And what he starts calling the great civilization is a utopian sort of imperial nationalist modernist imaginary, right? So there's an internal gaze that he's interested in, which is about sort of disempowering his internal opposition, but there's also an external uh, gaze. He is feeling very pressured to pr show himself as an enlightened modern monarch. And, and women's rights comes very, very clearly uh, in at that point, that it is outward facing uh, on some level. And that's why he's sending Ashraf Pahlavi around. That's why, you know, he there's all of these um, sort of private archival remnants of the Shah's own profound misogyny. <laughs> so he is not himself a feminist champion, nor does he particularly believe in, in women's rights, but it's part of this imperial imaginary. And I think the one last example I'll give of that is in 1967, the Shah holds a coronation ceremony for himself. And this is, you know, 24 years after he had ascended to power, but he's not, a, he's not strong enough, he feels, in 1953 to do such a thing. So he does it in 1967. And for the first time in Iranian history, the empress is also crowned um, Shah Banu. Um, so empress, you know, uh, sh uh, queen, however you want to uh, sort of best translate that. And and this is kind of, you know, he, he makes this big visible external push to show just how enlightened his rule is. He says that if he is to die before the crown prince turns 20, that his wife will become queen, which would have been unprecedented. And he want again, this is all part of presenting himself as a kind of enlightened modern ruler in line with global norms, in line with sort of liberal norms. But it's always hedged, right? He's not there's always some hedges <laughs> in in these in in these proclamations. So I think that kind of gives a shape to to where the Shah is at in terms of um, the question of gender more directly. He's like, my wife is a girl boss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but only like in a very specific, limited, you know, way. You know, he uses the Empress Farah Pahlavi at these certain key crisis moments to show something like, you know, as the revolutionary 
sort of uprisings are increasing in fervor, he you know undertakes to send the the empress on pilgrimage to Karbala to to sort of show off their Shia bona fides. So again, this is part of for him Ashraf and Farah are are able to sort of be his um, proxies in these spaces. Although Ashraf is is a a little bit more of a wild card. You know, she has a, a very strong personality. Well, he has that famous uh, interview with Oriana Fellacci where um, she asks him something along the lines of, um, you know, do you think women can, I mean, are, what are, you know, are women equal to men in your estimation and these sorts of things in terms of their accomplishments? And he, and, and he says, you know, women haven't even produced a kind of a great chef or when similarly he's asked in an interview with a US media outlet um, alongside Farah Dibar, his 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 third wife, um, do you think women can lead? And he in essence refuses to answer, and he sort of looks to the interviewer <laughs> that you're sort of making me feel very uncomfortable alongside um, my wife, and then his wife is sort of sitting there. Yeah, kind of squirming almost, and then has to say, yeah, I don't think you really believe that. <laughs> and then they sort of move on. It's this very uncomfortable kind of conversation. But I just wanted to, I mean, just stress um, something, because I think it's actually just, uh, it's the key, I think the key to understanding the quote-unquote reforms which the Shah pursued is that so whether it's with um, women or whether it's actually with sort of the various kind of bursaries they would give to students to actually go abroad, it was basically everybody had to ultimately serve within the grand design of his project. It was all ultimately about just reconstituting this vertical relationship, this sort of corporatist relationship of some description where people sort of served a different function, you know, within um, the ruling system. So obviously, you know, he, he definitely did not expect, you know, students to be engineering students who were then sent to Berkeley to study, to come back as Maoists who are then going to completely, you know, call his rule into question. And on the one hand, with the case of women, it's a similar thing. On the one hand, he was co-opting this sort of long history of struggles by independent women's organisations. Many were on the left, liberals and so on. But he certainly... You know, he didn't expect women to challenge his rule, mm-hmm. and like you, and I, and I think as Goldnar was saying, there was a yeah, it was about portraying and depicting um, Iran as you know a, a modernizing, you know, on the way to progress, and it had and it's a strange, strange hybrid between. Um, I think again we spoke about this a bit last week, sort of this Janus faced kind of face of nationalism in the way sort of. Um, uh, reconstituting his authoritarian rule, looking to his rule, looking towards the future and Iran as being, you know, the sort of Japan of the Middle East, but very much under ultimately his, you know, his rule, his imprimatur, and a sort of a yeah, a, a kind of authoritarian, uh, monarchical um, system, and then drawing on all of these sort of imperial myths, um, which obviously then culminate in the famous 1971. Um, sort of commemoration of quote unquote two thousand five hundred years of um, Iranian uh, monarchy and this sort of lavish party as a kind of a testament to his rule and sort of trying to get international um, recognition legitimacy um, through basically putting on this this huge kind of circus glorified circus and again which created which caused a lot of indignation and I would say a lot of this also just comes from one is the sort of I mean you have to remember there's like from fifty three there is a fundamental legitimacy deficit I mean 
This is a Shah who, I mean, is widely thought and is widely perceived to owe his throne to foreign intelligence agencies. And this is kind of, in a sense, a sort of uh, a challenge uh, which he's constantly trying to overcome or compensate for. He's almost sort of, you know, cosplaying this kind of revolutionary monarch exactly because he feels so inadequate um, uh, in this regard. And he's kind of constantly something which is sort of hanging over his head, looming. I mean, he's well aware in 1958 that the Iraqi monarchy is overthrown. Uh, by anti-colonialists, yeah. right? So that's just before the White Revolution. He references it several times as as the thing that yeah. could happen if the White Revolution doesn't take root, at least internally, he and his advisors are talking about. Yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you, I see. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. That's good. That's okay. Yeah, I just, I wanted to mention one thing about the ways in which there are all of these kinds of almost paradoxical positions taken by people or vacillations between different discourses. On the one hand, the Shah is talking about revolution. On the other hand, he's talking about being this great monarch in a line of 2,500 monarchs. But there are a lot of ways in which the independent um, social organizations, political activism, um, uh, opposition groups are are putting pressure on the, on the Shah, but not only the Shah, right? Even Khomeini, who at this time is not yet the figure he is going to become, in some of his speeches, I mean, we know that the ulama, all of the, you know, enormous number of the ulama oppose land reform. You know, private property is considered inviolable in Islamic law, uh, at least in, in, in many interpretations of it. And a lot of the ulama are large landowners. But in some of his most public-facing speeches, Khomeini doesn't emphasize his opposition to land reform. He emphasizes the sort of uh, oppressive qualities of the Shah, his giving concessions to to the West, his his all of the things that are much more popularly disliked about him. And although he opposes very stringently the women's right to vote, when it comes down to it, by the time the revolution happens, that's no longer really on the table. You know, there's no, at no point is there a serious effort to disenfranchise women at the time of the revolution. And I think that we see in this way that these political demands are actually much bigger than even they're bigger than their movement, because at some point, you know, the Shah convinces some members of the National Front as that revolution is is truly escalated kind of outside of his control, has convinced some of them to try to take some moderating positions and some of the more moderate clergy take some moderating positions. But people's demands continue to be, they're still going out on the streets, they're still, they're still protesting. So some of the some of the political demands that come out of this era, some of the political transformations that come out of this era, I think precisely are not able to be captured by the statist, corporatist rubric that the Shah assumes that they're going to be kept in. And women, the women's right to vote is one of those things that the, even the senior ulama don't really come back to. And similarly, you know, Khomeini says... There's this referendum. The Shah holds a referendum on the white revolution. And quite ridiculously, it comes back 99.99% in favor, right? Meanwhile, there's like protests happening just a couple months uh, later that are quite large. But Khomeini says that there's no such thing as a referendum in Islamic law. And it's un-Islamic. It's not a Sharia based and it, it doesn't count. But then when it comes to it, um, after the success of the revolution, the Islamic revolutionaries hold a referendum on the Islamic Republic. You know, do you want an Islamic Republic, which overwhelmingly wins uh, the vote? So again, we see that there are these sort of political forms that have stickiness even beyond their initial application or their initial use as kind of tools in the hands of dictatorial monarchs. I think we talked a little bit about this too, about the 
political language of nationalism and kind of imperial and even racialist nationalism that the Qajars start to use, but really gets emphasized in the Pahlavi period. That is also something that extends far beyond the Qajars. And even after the, the Pahlavis, this kind of um, high imperial nationalist imaginary of, of Persian grandeur is kind of in the ether um, in the, and, and has a kind of stickiness beyond its use by any one government. And I wanted to emphasize all of those things too, because they are very much going to continue to circulate and, and kind of move forward as the revolutionary upheaval begins in the 1970s. How did the shape of the political opposition change in the years after the coup? As, as the National Front was repressed time and again, and Islamist figures, including, of course, Rahola Khomeini, emerged to the fore. Okay, so the um, the Amini government is in many ways seen as marking this last hurrah for internal reform, reform within, like actually people from within the establishment actually trying to not merely modernise the regime, but actually open it up to a greater degree of um, political competition, democratic contestation, civil liberties, so on and so forth. So it's obviously in this period that the um, National Front and from the Second National Front has its kind of brief period in the sun. They are clamped down upon, they're arrested, their leadership um, very, very quickly. Then shortly after that, the Third uh, National Front is declared and it really only lasts for a couple of weeks. And that was an interesting experiment in itself because it was this broad kind of coalition of different forces that kind of wanted to or were calling for this political opening, uh, but it also called for alliances with various organisations across civil society, so including unions and guilds and so on. So it was really trying to forge this very broad coalition, but it was completely um, snuffed out, um, repressed profoundly. And many of these activists, so people like Abul Hassan al-Bani Saad, who were very active in the National Front, or people like Hassan al-Ziyar Zarifi, who then becomes one of the founders um, of the uh, People's Fadayan guerrillas, I mean, and obviously Abul Hassan al-Bani Saad becomes the first president of the Islamic Republic. Many of them become profoundly radicalised after this. Also, obviously, it's in this period that we see the emergence of um, Ayatollah Khomeini really coming to the, you know, emerging onto the national scene for the first time. And Ayatollah Khomeini was, you know, he came from a provincial background in the small um, town of Khomein. His father was killed by a provincial landlord um, when he was only a couple, several months old. Um, he goes into the clergy from a very, very, from as a teenager, a young, a young teenager. He had ties to the Fadiyan Islam, sort of this, this first sort of Islamist group, which engaged in all sorts of assassinations and was calling for an Islamist state, but whose leadership was pretty much decapitated uh, in 1955. And, and that was sort of aligned with Mossadegh's nationalists, no? They turn on Mossadegh, actually, right. because he wasn't willing to pursue the sort of Islamist agenda. Um, but that's a whole um, other story. So Khomeini has his ties to the his, his ties to the fact in Islam. However, these sort of Islamist inclinations are definitely not approved of by uh, Ayatollah Hossein Bourjerdi, uh, who is sort of the preeminent kind of uh, Ayatollah, Grand Ayatollah, we might say, of Iran, who is very much of a, in the quietest mold and was also a teacher of Khomeini. And Khomeini himself was a very unusual cleric, actually, because he he wasn't known for his learning actually of jurisprudence. But his main interests actually were on Islamic philosophy, Neoplatonic philosophy. So Avicenna, 
and Mullah Sadra and sort of leading sort of these sorts of figures, as well as um, he also wrote poetry. He And he actually used the name Hindi because he actually, at least one part of his family, his ancestors went back to Kashmir. So he wrote sort of, um, you could say, amorous poetry, enamoured of God or enamoured of whoever. Um, so he was actually quite unusual in this respect. Um, his interest in philosophy, as I said, an interest in mysticism, like a deep interest in his own, which was actually quite frowned upon by the majority of the clergy at this time. So he was a very kind of a unique cleric. Even sort of reading newspapers, things was frowned upon. He actually used to, you know, he was an avid listener of like BBC Radio and things like this. And actually was quite, even listened to, you know, later on like Radio Israel, uh, he was following the news uh, in Farsi, following the news of what was going on. Um, in the country. But anyway, so by the time we hit June 63, this is when he mounts his, um, you know, very, very strong opposition to the Shah's regime. And then, yeah, first and foremost, he's centering um, sort of dependence on the United States, um, sort of what he sees as the Shah's being, you know, supine to the interests of foreign powers, and very much criticising the Shah's, what he sees as despotism, forms of arbitrary authority, um, and any kind of about an abandonment of any sort of pretense to be, you know, the, the sort of the classic uh, Islamic monarch. And it's in 1963, in June 1963, that he sort of gives this, his very famous speech, kind of warning the Shah, um, exhorting the Shah not to pursue this road. But also, I mean, and this is actually something which a number of socialists pointed to at the time, um, you know, very critical of women being given the vote, very critical of the land reform. So uh, very even at this period, we see this kind of um, a kind of ambivalent kind of uh, uh, position, in it, really, because on the one hand, he's giving this very sort of stark uh, opposition. Very, you know, and it was seen as very brave and courageous for so like, openly sort of challenging the Shah's authority and obviously challenging, you know, depends on the United States, this sort of un, this tacit um, relationships or um, surreptitious relationships with the Israeli state, but at the same time being critical of these, you know, the right revolution as a whole and what was seen by some as actually, um, quote unquote, progressive um, reforms on the question of women and minorities and so on. He's arrested after this um, speech and then there are huge protests in Qom, but other cities um, sort of outraged at this. And this is then finally put down by Asad al-Alam, who's prime minister and the Shah's um, childhood companion and himself comes from a very you know, landed family. Um, and then he is um, released. And then he, um, um, he has another speech in 1964, where he sort of compares, this is where he sort of famously compares the Shah to the figure of the Umayyad Caliph Yazid, who in sort of Shia law is you know, one of the most infamous personalities or perhaps the most infamous uh, personality in sort of sheer sacred history, um, the same figure who actually put down and ultimately killed um, Imam Hussein, the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, um, who Shias mourn every year. So, you know, Khomeini taps into this religious symbolism here in order to compare the Shah, really as a sort of, you know, exemplary epitome of an oppressive, brutal, illegitimate um, leader. A Sunni, Sunni despot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, this is the thing. We, we, we couldn't say Sunnism was formed as a kind of an orthodoxy at this period, but it was kind of seen as sort of this family dynasty which had betrayed the legacy of the Prophet and had actually had, you know, spilt the blood of the Prophet's family. And this was seen as just, you know, absolutely egregious. So comparing it, so tapping into that immediately sort of taps into this reservoir of myth and symbolism and memory and all these sorts of things. Um, and, you know, and, and really it's sort of so it's 
very plainly proclaiming that the Shah is um, illegitimate, uh, brutal and an oppressive um, leader. And again, he's arrested. And ultimately, there's this decision of whether the regime, what sort of measures the regime ought to take. Should it uh, jail him? Should it execute him? And so on. And senior clerics um, step in to recognise him actually as a source of emulation, sort of the preeminent of the, the highest echelons of the Shia clergy. Um, and he's and he's sent into exile first to Turkey, and then he makes his um, way to Najaf. But it's important to actually understand that the, what, the sort of in June sixty three, and it's called the fifteenth of Khordad, that is the Persian uh, month. That itself has been and uh, enshrined as kind of a key watershed in the Islamist uh, historiography. Uh, and how basically subsequently the Islamic Republic would try and actually um, provide its own narrative of sort of the run up to the revolution, 15th of Khordad, where Khomeini really comes, you know, and there's sort of this uprising uh, after Khomeini's arrest, that's sort of seen as this pivotal kind of moment. And it was, of course, an important moment, but, you know, but their, their, sort of their, attribution, their attribution of importance to it is because obviously this is where Khomeini becomes this sort of this national figure. And he hadn't become this sort of force of sort of unifying force. He would subsequently. There were actually significant debates within left wing circles in Iran of how they ought to understand and orient towards the Islamist opposition, because many were of the mind that yes, indeed, Khomeini's denunciation and bravery and courage in you know challenging the Shah on every single count, his very legitimacy was extremely important. And clearly, religion had this um, great mobilising power and force. But many others also, both members of the National Front and people such like Khaled Maliki, who were part of the Third National Front, independent socialists, members of the Tudor Party as well, actually, did see a, sort of a reactionary side and danger here as well, particularly over the question of uh, land reform and sort of this, uh, this sort of long-standing relation between landed interests and elements of the clergy, as well as the question of women's enfranchisement. But yeah, this is really where Khomeini becomes the quote-unquote leader of the revolution. High oil prices were essential to funding the white revolution. And, and of course, oil had for a long time been at the center of Iranian politics, including, of course, both Mossadegh's nationalist movement in Tuda and the coup against Mossadegh because he had dared to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company. And then even more recently, you know, in, in recent years, it's been at the center of the conflict between the U.S. and Iran over the nuclear program with the U.S. imposing major sanctions against the industry. Stepping back from a moment from the historical chronology, how did the Shah's regime fit into the global political economy of oil at that moment, because again, in 1953, oil nationalization had prompted the U.S. and Britain to launch the coup that brought the Shah to power. By 1960, the Shah's Iran was a founding member of OPEC. So, no, of course, I mean the Shah does emerge as a, a founding member of OPEC, and actually, you know, we have over this period. So, throughout then the, the 60s, we do see the Shah actually in a sense, buying into what I was sort of rather facetiously calling his kind of cosplaying this sort of revolutionary nationalist sort of leader. Um, and very much kind of this whole uh, discourse of sovereign rights does become part of the kind of dominant lexicon of uh, powers in the global south. So we do see the Shah actually pushing and particularly fighting, being quite frustrated 
about the amount of oil which is being produced, the oil quotas um, from the oil companies. So we do see a back and forth with the consortium and him quite frustrated in sending his courtiers to try and actually push for and negotiate for higher revenues. Because on the one hand, the Shah has this uh, these very lofty like visions for his modernizing vision of how he wants to transform Iran and turn it into, you know, the Japan of the Middle East and so on. But he's frustrated in terms of the actually the amount of um, all revenues which are coming. They're not actually where he, as, as far as he's concerned, they need to be. And I think, you know, playing this role in OPEC is him trying to basically assert kind of more, have a more of a say over over questions such as this, of course, because the production of scarcity is an essential part of profiteering in sort of the global um, oil industry. And yeah, more often than not, the oil companies weren't willing to actually to, to see to the Shah's um, demands. But then, yeah, as he sort of manages to kind of claw more control, more autonomy, um, while very much at the same time being aligned with, you could say, um, yeah, you know, US interests often, and such, and we see this again in the OPEC crisis of '73, where you know he Iran does not actually participate in the boycott. It's actually Arab states led by obviously King Faisal, Saudi Arabia, who who have a played the signal role in that. Um, but what Iran does actually, as a result of soaring oil prices, it profits immensely, and this is obviously then used for his developmentalist um, vision. We just see sort of this uh, you know rapid process. Um, of development where per capita sort of income increases several fold in the space of like 15 to 20 years. So we do see this like remarkable period of growth, but it's also characterized by increased levels of inequality, as well as actually, as I've been saying, sort of this consolidation on the political front of actually trying to ever more sort of consolidate his autocracy. So the politics of all is very, very much part of that and a major kind of facilitator um, of that as well. Um, and also corruption. I mean, we the money that's coming in from increased oil revenues, there's just enormous amount of evidence of widespread and massive corruption. And this becomes one of the major um, sort of touchstones for revolutionaries across the political gamut. It's one of the issues along with um, the issue of uh, torture and political repression and and um, political incarceration that really d- brings po- protesters and revolutionaries and dissidents across the political spectrum together is this issue of corruption. And Eskandar mentions the fact that very definitively a lot of money does flow into these essentially sort of social and civic services. I mean, there's some ups and downs in the early 70s, but by 1977 or so, the unemployment in the country is virtually negligible. And a lot of this has to do with the development projects that are promoted by the government. I mean, the the projects are enormous and they bring in a lot of revenue for for ordinary Iranians. But a lot of the money is clearly flowing into the the Pahlavi family coffers and the Pahlavi foundation. And this becomes one of the major sort of issues that brings protesters together, but also the something that actually has weird reverberations into the revolutionary period too. When Khomeini becomes a kind of household name in the United States, which isn't, of course, until really the taking of the U.S. embassy and the hostage crisis. Like, yeah, of course, the revolution, some people might have heard more about Khomeini at that point, but he becomes a kind of widely known figure at the point of the hostage crisis. But people associate Khomeini with the oil pricing convulsions of the decade prior. So all across Wisconsin, for example, these billboards go up that remind drivers to drive 55 with huge, you know, scary images of Khomeini next to them. 
kind of indicating <laughs> that this person that we now know we hate for reasons having to do with the hostage crisis is somehow also behind um, escalating oil prices and kind of conceptually linking these things in the minds of American citizens who don't really have much of a sense of who Khomeini is beyond these these particular touchstones. How did the contradictions of the Shah's regime, including those of the White Revolution, how, how did they ultimately undermine his regime's power rather than fortifying it, as I imagine he had intended? Eskandar, you mentioned, for example, that that his that his land reform accelerated the mass proletarianization of peasants into peripheral urban slums, particularly like South Tehran, or sending students abroad to study engineering, turning them into revolutionary Maoists. Why, why did a project to bind the people to the regime and to the state backfire, creating multiple blocks increasingly alienated from and opposed to his rule? What were the key social blocks that turned against the regime and why? Why did the Shah become unable to crush or co-opt dissent? And why did ultimately the Islamic Revolution break out when and how it did? So I think to have a sense of why ultimately the Shah's government collapses and he's not able to sort of control the widespread dissatisfaction with his government in 1979, you have to go to a point that I alluded to a few years prior, when in fact, things seem quite stable. I mean, until very, very late in the game, the global powers, the US in particular, are calling Iran a island of stability. Very famously, Carter says Iran is an island of stability um, in uh, otherwise troubled Middle East. So it's, it's really, for many years, the Shah is thinking that his white revolution and his great civilization are in fact enormous successes. So the white revolution has the effect of really emphasizing these contradictions that come to be terminal for the government. I mean, Eskandar mentioned the mass urbanization and mass proletarianization of small farmers who are not able to sort of subsist on what the sort of agricultural production uh, looks like in the aftermath of the white revolution. Similarly, the other group of uh, Iranians who are maybe the main beneficiaries of the white revolution, namely the rising um, modern middle classes, people who are having their education subsidized, or there's there's a huge expansion of, of education at, at every level, like from the primary level to college level. This comes to backfire as well, because they're not, they're being sort of... Uh, vertically interpolated into a project that's meant to sort of show the and promote the wonderfulness of the Shah and the Pahlavi government. But they're not being allowed into the political system or into the sort of to participate in decision making at a meaningful level whatsoever. Right. So, you know, the the two political parties that exist um, before the one party system, the resurgence party is founded in the mid 1970s. They're sort of jokingly called the yes, sir, and the yes, of course, sir parties, because they're not meaningful political parties. They're not allowed meaningful political opposition. And they're really, I mean, when it's decided which members of Majlis would belong to which party, they're basically appointed to to membership of those parties by the Shah and by, uh, with help from Savak. So there's no meaningful way for the political opposition to become part of this broader governance structure. So there's an expansion of the state and an expansion of the bureaucracy and an expansion of all of these sort of middle class 
norms. Like into the 1960s, all of a sudden millions of people have radios, um, hundreds of thousands of people, and then eventually millions of people have television sets. More and more people are reading newspapers. They're part of a kind of national and global public sphere, but they're not allowed to participate in political projects in the, or in, in decision-making. So this produces another contradiction that eventually works to undermine the Shah. And as more and more people are becoming sort of part of this rising modern middle class, more and more people are both being educated in Iran and abroad, uh, especially those Iranian students outside of the country, start in the aftermath of the white revolution, uh, start and what eventually becomes quite an important part of the revolutionary coalition, an organization called the Confederation for Iranian Students. That organization alone gives you a sense of some of the shifts that happen politically. It starts out promoting an idea of constitutional monarchy and nationalism in the kind of Mossad Deris model for the most part. And then eventually, within just a few years, is dominated by students who are calling for armed revolution. So in the aftermath, particularly of the white revolution, when more and more Iranians are perceiving enormous income inequality, but also what is sometimes called by sociologists among the middle classes an expectation gap. There's a gap between their education levels, their sense of what they desire in the world, their desire to participate in uh, the social systems of their country and their inability to do so. is remi They're reminded of it over and over and over again. And all of these forces, these relatively educated middle-class people radicalize along armed lines. So whereas the same groups of people 10 years, 15 years prior in, from Mossadegh's time to 63 or so are calling for still working within the constitutional idiom, calling for participatory politics, calling for party politics. And really remember that the Tudeh party had never called for the overthrow of the government, even at the height of its power in the 1940s and 50s, was still talking about participatory politics. By the mid-1960s, there are increased calls for armed rebellion, armed revolution. And this is a global phenomenon as well, right, that Iranian students and revolutionaries are tapping into. It cannot be, I think, overstated um, how important it is that in the, I don't know, radicalization process of these, of these young dissidents, that there is no avenue for them to sort of be part of politics in Iran. But it also can't be overstated that the global context really, really matters, right? The fact of eventually the Cuban revolution, the fact of um, the sort of public prominence of Brazilian guerrillas, of, of Che Guevara, of, of Ho Chi Minh, of the Vietnamese movement. These are the new kind of revolutionary models that are available to Iranians. And they're really attractive to these young Iranians in part because both China and the Soviet Union are playing nice with the Shah. And so the earlier models of uh, sort of communist revolution or the, or the, even in the aftermath of the Sino-Soviet split, you know, Iranians are like, well, you know, a lot of the Iranian left, young Iranian left is in a position where they're discussing the fact that both China and the Soviet Union are selling arms to the Shah or basically having diplomatic and economic relationships with him. So a very, maybe the most famed theorist of the leftist uh, guerrillas in the early 1970s, Bijan Jezani, writes about this, about the fact that, that there are important revolutionary figures. They need to know the Russian revolutionaries and they need to know the Chinese revolutionaries and they need to engage with those theories, but that this, those governments are not actually in a position where they're helping the Iranian revolutionaries whatsoever. And so they need to sort of look to other models. Uh, that's where things like Algeria, Vietnam, Palestine, Cuba, et cetera, come in. And revolutionaries 
travel to those places to train uh, with these armed guerrillas. So the radicalization that um, I'm talking about happens both because of the contradictions born of the domestic context, um, economically for the working classes and also um, sort of politically for, for the rising middle classes, and also of the new political context born of the post-Sino-Soviet split and the, these new revolutionary movements um, across the global south. So yeah, as, as you mentioned in your question, um, we do see this sort of unparalleled kind of you know, rural urban migration, proletarianization, influx of peasants into the cities. We see as Golna was kind of very eloquently kind of laying out the emergence of this uh, modern middle class, really, who were benef- beneficiaries of this system, but then yeah, had um, considerable demands on it, which the regime could not um, meet. But I'd say there's another angle to this as well, insofar as um, this sort of this passive revolution of the Shah and this increased pers- both personalization of power and centralization of power through the sort of modern bureaucratic state, but obviously uh, twinned with this deep sort of micromanaging, highly personalistic form of rule, basically destroys all of the former kind of buffers and intermediary sort of classes and elements, uh, social forces that could deflect um, responsibility and blame on the Shah. So with the White Revolution, we see in many ways, while we do see actually a consolidation of forms of agribusiness and so on, often by actually favoured elements of the court and, uh, and and maybe landed families as well, we also do see actually many of these sort of big landed families who, when push came to shove, you know, against sort of the Red Terror or the Red Menace or whatever, would ultimately uh, link hands with the Shah. Many of them are actually quite alienated and, again, not willing to intervene. And many of them are, their, their power and social power is also very considerably um, eroded. We also see this in terms of the disenchantment of the uh, traditional clergy, in part because, well, in large part because, you know, their role in the judicial system, Sharia courts, the educational system has been, again, massively um, eroded, if not like pretty much neutralized. So there's a sort of a long-standing, this very kind of powerful um, religious social force in Iran, um, sort of an institution which goes all the way back to the 16th century. And obviously it's had its ups and downs and whatnot, but nevertheless, it has been a consistent force. And when we spoke about the tobacco revolt, we spoke about the constitutional revolution. And so the clergy has been an important force, but then increasingly disenchanted, disillusioned, either they're outright hostile to the Shah or they're quietest. And there, are, of course, there are elements too, which are very much um, a Aligned with the Shah's room, but they are increasingly a minority. They're overwhelmingly, there is a silent kind of majority, as well as a very much engaged, politicized uh, element, which is increasingly Islamist. Then there's also obviously the Bazaar, which has this long standing, again, relationship with the clergy, the, what we say the traditional middle class versus this new middle class, which has emerged in the Pahlavi period, which again, very much feels both threatened and uh, disrespected and devalued uh, by the Pahlavi regime, um, which very much favoured, you know, it, the bazaar does not fit in with this project of modernization. It's seen as antiquated. It's seen as actually betraying a past which the Shah and the Pahlavis would rather forget. So, um, and if we recall, I mean, back in the, both in the tobacco revolt and the constitutional revolution, the clergy's kind of check on the Shah's, sorry, the clergy and the um, Bazaar's check on the Shah's regime has well, been a consistent force. Um, it's played a consistent role. And I would say sort of you know, increasingly over the 60s and 70s, this is very much 
there as well, especially as the Shah came to you know, influence what was often called maybe a comprador bourgeoisie, foreign capital, or big business and big enterprises against mercantile interests, which you know, still overwhelmingly you know, had a real hold and grip um, on the retail industry in Iran. Um, but they're very much uh, angered and and so on. And obviously, this really comes to a head in around you know in the late 70s, 77 and so on, where um, because of spiraling inflation, the Rastakhi's party, the resurgence party, the one party state basically sends out various um, yeah, individuals to scrutinize prices and basically castigate and rebuke. Um, and fine uh, bazaaris, mer- mer- merchants who are charging too much or are seen as basically charging in excess of, of fixed prices. And this is really seen as sort of many ways the, the final nail of the coffin. This is where the kind of the, the fractious relationship between the bazaar and the shah really just kind of, you know, is, is irre- is irre- becomes irreparable, basically. So these are sort of long-term kind of structural kind of uh, fissures and cleavages and as I said, twinned with this personalization of power where the Shah can no longer deflect. He can no longer defer to sympathetic clergymen. He can no longer defer to, you know, have landlords in a sense, big landholders, landowning families in their respective provinces try and actually co-opt and actually um, and bring over opposition to his side and so on. And this is where actually the Shah increasingly, and obviously the Savak, which is seen as his tool, Becomes seen as, and the royal family and the corruption, all these sorts of things which Gorna was talking about, they all become, in a sense, um, you know, really focused on the in the person of the Shah. I mean, all of these grievances, all of this anger becomes very much focused on his person. And he's really seen as to be the maker of this. But again, one thing I just do want to, I do want to stress, I think we did touch on it, but it is really important that with hindsight, obviously, that's the only other time we can really say, has a revolution happened? Has it not? Was a revolution successful or whatnot? And, you know, as Golnar said at the very beginning of, of, of this question, uh, the, you know, we only have a sense of inevitability of it now, that the Shah was destined to fall. But in the period, I mean, he was um, riding high, um, really until 1977, he, and, and the very fact that he thought a one state a one state party was um, a good idea, and the fact that he was so um, kind of arrogant and con, you know and contemptuous of everybody and every anyone who dared to think otherwise. I mean, he famously sort of said, "If you're not going to join the resurgence party, then take your passports and leave." Anyone who doesn't is, in essence, a traitor. You know, this is 1975. You've got to think this is like two years before it all begins to unravel. And the United States was very much, you know, caught blindsided as well. Like, I mean, this very much comes out when you're looking at sort of the um, the discussions with the National Security Council, the Carter administration, they're just very much, you know, uh, blindsided. And they're like, we thought this was very much, you know, this, it was part of obviously Nixon's uh, twin uh, pillar strategy in the region as well. And he was, the Shah was uh, very much portraying himself as the gendarme of the, of the, of the Persian Gulf. So it was very much kind of like a counter-revolutionary force in the Persian Gulf. He wanted to have this outsized role in the region. He was, and this is also something we haven't actually mentioned, he was just spending inordinate amounts on American, predominantly American, but not only American, arms. And obviously a lot of this, of course, of course, you know, a fair amount, billions was being sent on development. And this created all of these kind of contradictions, you know, in, in the economic and political arenas. But he was spending a fortune on armaments, one of the highest per, you know, per capita in the world, 
Um, and Iran, I think, you know, at the time of the Revolution, had like the fifth biggest army in the world. I mean, it was, you know, it was, this was very much part of, you know, also portraying himself again, trying to live up to his father's image as, you know, this um, uh, courageous soldier who, you know, uh, very much leader of the nation. Um, and he would constantly, obviously, wear sort of military regalia. And again, this this very much fits in with what we were saying before that you know this sort of uh, proliferation of military coups by sort of radical nationalists um, throughout the Arab world. Um, he was very much leading into that in a sense as well. But I mean, you know, we can see sort of there's lots of things going on, as I said, like this personalization of power, um, trying to project power again uh, beyond uh, Iran into the broader region disillusionment with all of these sort of social forces, which, you know, by 77, I mean, all of those links, those intermediary links, which would have allowed the monarchy to maybe manage crises uh, are very much severed. And there's this complete disillusionment and a rejection and repudiation of, of the Pafli system sort of in toto. Hi, this is Olufemi Otaiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies in the Capitalist War on Radical Workers by Ahmed White. Under the Iron Heel is a dramatic, deeply researched account of how legal repression and vigilantism brought down the Wobblies and how the destruction of their union haunts us to this day. White documents the torrent of legal persecution and sometimes lethal violence that shattered the industrial workers of the world. Under the Iron Heel uncovers disturbing truths about the law, political repression, and the limits of free speech and association in class society. Under the Iron Heel by Ahmed White. Out now from University of California Press. Learn more at ucpress.edu. What was the balance of forces between Islamist and leftist forces in the revolution? And then and then to what extent can you neatly distinguish between the two? Af- after all, a major, if not the principal intellectual influence on the Islamic revolution was Ali Shariati. Mazanani, who developed this fascinating synthesis between, on the one hand, third-worldist, socialist, anti-imperialist politics, and then on the other, Shiism, which he reconceived as a faith of popular struggle. What was that balance of forces, and to what degree were the two forces intermeshed? Yeah, this is a really important question, Dan, and honestly one that is a matter of significant debate among historians, um, in part because there's different historiographical traditions. You know, of course, if you are in the Islamic Republic, uh, part of the kind of official narrative, um, the left is negligible. Um, It comes into the story only as kind of a traitorous force. So it's very much seen as a not only Islamist, but clerical revolution. Um, And I want to really, you know, start to disaggregate between some of these different things. Just as there are different forces of leftists, there are different forces of Islamists as well. The the figure that you point to, Ali Shariati, is himself emblematic of some of the major transformations that happen in Iran in the middle part of the 
of the century. He is he comes from a religious family, and his father is is a uh, sort of preacher in his own in his own right, and a and a critic of the Pahlavi government, um, associated with a kind of precursor to 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 these movements that emerge in the sixties and seventies, called um, yeah the God worshiping socialists. So Shariati comes out of, of that tradition. He mostly is raised in, in Mashhad, but he's eventually educated uh, in part in France and where he corresponds with Fanon and he goes to protests on behalf of the Algerian revolution where he's engaging with all of these third worldist revolutionary figures. So he's a very different kind of figure. He has a very different kind of lineage than does Khomeini, whose lineage, while unconventional for a cleric in terms of his interests in in mysticism and philosophy, but is nonetheless still part of the traditional seminary education um, that would be fitting of his class. So even among the Islamists, there's a split between lay Islamists, people who are considered kind of lay Islamists and clerics. We see this in the guerrilla groups that emerge as well, where there are guerrillas who are basically professing a kind of eclectic mixture of basically an engagement with anti-colonial revolution and Marxism, uh, on the one hand, socialism on the one hand, and then a kind of revolutionary Shiism as maybe um, in part born out of the influence of Shariati on the other. So there are all of these different trends and tendencies that are percolating and circulating in the 1970s among students, among revolutionaries. Certainly among the student groups, there is a move towards revolutionary Marxism-Leninism as the major sort of broad trend uh, among both students in, well, mostly uh, among students outside of the country. But among students in the country, there are certainly, there are those who are, who affiliate themselves sort of as a trend with uh, the Mujahideen Khalq, who is this group of, as I said, kind of eclectic socialist Islamists. I mean, the Shah tries to disparage them as what he calls Marxist Muslims, but they they disavow that kind of language and they say, no, this is Shiism. Shiism is a revolutionary religious force. Um, so all of this is percolating, right, in the in the 1970s, particularly after this huge event in the political and revolutionary imaginary of of these young Iranians. And that is when in February of 1971, uh, there is the first kind of broadly publicized um, guerrilla action uh, when a number of Marxist revolutionaries who are part of the group that is going to be sort of popularly known as the uh, Fadayan, they uh, storm a gendarmerie post in a northern village by the name of Siakal. It, their effort is a total failure at the level of a sort of military operation. They are not successful. They are eventually killed. But it becomes a big kind of public relations triumph for the new generation of revolutionaries who are very much eager to dissociate themselves with what they see as the malaise that has overtaken um, the Iranian opposition in the aftermath of 1963. They see the Tudeh and National Front as kind of caught in a never-ending cycle of quietism and self-recrimination and, and malaise and an inability to think out of the paradigm of parliamentary politics, which is clearly a dead end at this point um, in their view. And they start theorizing the necessity for armed 
um, revolution. There is several different tendencies within the Marxist Fede Yun uh, that we can go into in more detail if you want. I'm kind of giving a broad strokes of, of some of the different forces. So certainly revolutionary Marxism-Leninism, particularly influenced by Cuban revolution, by the Palestinian movement, by the Vietnam, and then also this, this Shariatian new Shiism, uh, revolutionary Shiism. And Shariati is very keen on saying that this is not a rethinking of Shiism, but in fact, it is the reactionary, quietist, apolitical members of the clergy who have sort of wrestled the true meaning of Islam away from this um, kind of its orientation towards social justice and towards equality. You know, the idea of uh, the Imam Ali as the kind of first socialist, the first person invested um, totally in a classless, just society, right? So Shariati is really important because he rethinks all of these concepts. He re-imbues these words and terms from longstanding um, Shia tradition and imbues them with this new revolutionary fervor. Uh, and this is very influential on this group, particularly on these groups of uh, young people based in cities whose families and who maybe themselves had been displaced from provincial uh, contexts in which they had, um, their families had been for, for you know, since they knew, and then had recently been displaced into the cities and were kind of um, part of this new urban milieu that was in in some cases unfamiliar uh, or alienating for them, right? So the majority of the people who, there is some mixtures, um, but the majority of the people who sort of fall into the leftist camps tend to have come from families that were already part of the sort of modernizing middle classes, sec secularist middle classes, in some cases already had liberal or leftist families that they're, that they're raised in. The Mujahideen, the sort of Shariati and post-Shariati world might have come from families, religious families, but nonetheless, they're now in cities, they're, they're gaining sort of new educations um, outside of the sort of traditional seminary structures. So all of this is part of the world of the revolutionary milieu that's building in the 1970s. But I want to emphasize that all of this could have happened, all of these intellectuals, all of this political movement, all of this could have happened without a revolution, right? There are, I don't want to think too teleologically from 1970, 71, 72, or from Shariati, you know, the moment of Shariati's popularity to the, the final fall of the Shah, because a lot has to happen from 77 to 79 um, for the Shah's government to finally collapse. So, there, all of this could have happened, I think, without the final success of a revolutionary movement. Um, I mean, there would have been a revolutionary movement, but maybe not a uh, final success of one. And in fact, the guerrilla groups, the leftists and the Fedayan and the Mujahideen are, are crushed throughout the 1970s. They're decimated and they are not at the forefront of the revolutionary upheaval in 78, 79, they're not the ones who are sort of leading the, the movement to its final success. Although they're very important actually in some of the armed confrontations with the Pahlavi government in the final months of the Pahlavi government. I don't want to underemphasize them either. Um, but my point is that there is, the Shah remains quite fixated in particular on the threat of communism. So from his first days in power until his last days in power, he is viciously confronting all signs of 
what he sees as um, communist uh, possibility in the country. And there are networks of revolutionaries that are utterly decimated. I mean, hundreds of guerrillas are killed or imprisoned uh, over the course of just a handful of years. Um, most of the leadership of these groups is killed or imprisoned. That doesn't mean that they don't have a lot of influence, but their influence remains largely limited to universities um, and university students and then fellow travelers and readers who might be kind of um, engaging with those revolutionary thoughts. Um, but their, their influence is both massive in the sense of everyone knows about them. They are really emphasizing to ordinary people how brutal Savak is. They are showing that dissent is possible. This is one of the things that the armed insurrectionists, the revolution, the armed guerrillas talk about, is wanting to show cracks in the system of the Shah, to show that the Shah is not omnipotent. And in this sense, they are extraordinarily successful. They link all of these global revolutionary trends to what's happening in Iran. They have readings of the political violence of Savak where they link it to other, what they call neo-fascist governments all over the world and reactionary governments all over the world. And this becomes part of the kind of ether in which political thought is swimming uh, in the 1970s. But at a functional and sort of practical level, their groups are decimated by 1977. So at the moment that the cracks really start to show in the Shah's government, they're not the, the guerrilla groups are not positioned in such a way as to take advantage um, of, those, of those cracks in the same way that the clerical networks, which are repressed, and of course there are many clerics who are imprisoned, um, but they are not, the, the clerical networks and the, the sort of networks of seminaries and younger seminarians is not uh, sort of attacked in, with quite the same virulence as the guerrilla groups. Um, so this produces something of an imbalance in terms of which members of the broader revolutionary coalition are best positioned for leadership. Having said that, the revolution, until like well into the fall, after the fall of the revolutionary forces, you know, there are all sorts of left, leftist revolutionaries who are all over the world are going back to Iran thinking this is the success of their movement throughout uh, 1979 after the sort of establishment of the Islamic Republic. That's the, it's the era that is called the springtime of the revolution. And it's a kind of open space and open forum for all of these different revolutionary groups to be debating their, uh, all sorts of minutia. I mean, I don't want to go too much into the sectariana of this time, because in fact, there is just an enormous amount of sectarianized, um, different political sects and different kind of splits between different groups of leftists and Islamists. But that kind of gives you, I think, a lay of the land politically. And now I am very eager to hear Eskandar's response as well. No, I mean, you covered every, you covered a lot. Like, <laughs> yeah. I meant to be briefer, but you know how it is. It's like you start talking, you remember 20 other things. Um, the one thing I would emphasize a little bit more would be the importance of, like, going back to the Second, Third National Fronts and the repression of those and the repression of groups such as the liberation movement of Iran, out of which the Mujahideen, people's Mujahideen, like young people uh, who were somehow associated with that, or who went to the Hedayat Mosque where Ayatollah Talagani used to speak. And basically, he famously wrote a book called Ownership in Islam, where he basically reprises, um, there's lots of other things which you could, one could say is problematic, but he actually reprises the famous line from Marx's critique of the Gotha program, um, you know, from each, according to um, 
his ability from each according to his needs. So you see at this period throughout the sort of 60s, and obviously before that, you see with the people like Mohammed Nakhshab, the, sort of the, the founder and leader of the God-worshipping socialists. Yeah, very much a kind of a dialogue, I think, as um, Gornot kind of very like dexterously laid out, sort of conversations between those who were religiously inclined, um, socialists, those who were more secularly inclined, you might say, um, and often having quite um, vibrant um conversations in this regard and at the same time you obviously had Islamist forces who really felt threatened by the likes of the the Tudor party and religious forces and actually you'll you'll when you go through the memoirs and hear them speak about this period they what they say is that the Marxists had like an answer for everything they had an answer on art they had a position on on art they had a position on the economy they had a position on politics they had a position on literature they had a position on all these sorts of things and it's very much in the mold you can see of sort of particularly sort of a certain version of dialectical materialism was influenced by Soviet um, Marxism um, so Islamists very much see themselves of needing a program to compete with the Marxists who were both very well organised, um, ideologically disciplined, so on and so forth. Um, and anyway, so as, as a result of this, as Gona laid out, I mean, there's lots of different just yeah, hues of religious forces, some Islamists, some I would say not necessarily Islamists, and then Marxists of all descriptions, like we have the, um, the revolutionary organisation of the Tudor party, which comes out in the mid-60s, um, which is very much Maoist uh, influence and it's coming out of the from the Confederation of Iranian Students Abroad. But yeah, the Fadayan, I think, is a particularly interesting and notable one insofar as it actually comes out of various regional circles. So there's the Jazanizio Zarifi um, circle. And again, these are both activists in the National Front. I mean, uh, Bijan Jazanizio is interesting because he comes out of the youth organization of the Tudor party and he had sort of his family connections to the Tudor party, but he was very much active in the, um, active in the Second National Front as is Hassan Zia Zarifi, um, sort of among students and was very much kind of at the forefront of the student uh, movement of the National Front. And then you have another group in Mashhad, which is the uh, Puyan Ahmadzadeh circle, and they're very interesting as well. They're from Mashhad, which is obviously northeastern provincial city, but they were like reading uh, Reggie Debray. They were accessing copies of Monthly Review. Um, so they are, like I mean, as Gornow said, very much trying to follow global developments. You know, there is an internationalist consciousness which is percolating, which is, you know, which is growing and becoming ever more vibrant. And I think like both outside the country in the form of the Confederation of the Iranian Students, but also inside the country, uh, very much so. And they're very, very aware. The thing I actually wanted to stress, and I got kind of lost on a tangent there, but the thing that they wanted to stress was the kind of the, the political dead end, um, which Golnar also spoke to, but they like, they are literally kind of really grappling with this. And I think like, this isn't just simply them theorizing it. It's like, they're very aware that actually organizing in factories, connecting with workers, um, let alone contesting, you know, forget contesting elections, all these sorts of things are, have been absolutely expressly prohibited um, by the Shah's regime and actually trying to do so uh, meets with, you know, a guaranteed sort of prison sentence and possibly torture and all these sorts of things. So, you know, they very, very sort of expressly theorise this dead end and think that armed struggle as a form of kind of revolutionary praxis is the only way forward. And uh, sort of the subtitle of Amir Paravi's Puyan's uh, famous tract is kind of a rejection of the theory of survival, which they identify with the Tudor party. So the Tudor party are simply just trying to survive and they're still, in a sense, wedded to a kind of reformist program. Um, no, no, armed struggle is the only thing that kind of, in a sense, can yeah show the regime to be, to show that it's not impervious. But I just thought it was important to show, on the one hand, that 
it was initially, I mean, these various different groups who had come to a certain political alignment or political commitments independently of one another, uh, who still had significant disagreements, but then by 71 have in a sense of put these to one side, that this was very much in dialogue with sort of global lexicons of armed resistance. And actually the individual who led the CRKL operation, this attack on this gendarmerie in Iran was Ali Akbar um, Safoi Farahani, who had actually traveled to uh, the Palestinian camps to receive armed training at the hands of of the PLO. So they had actually, you know, they were they were very much following what was going on globally in internationalist fashion and actually were trying to learn um, from sort of fellow um, revolutionaries, not simply just by reading their books, like reading Debray or reading Che Guevara, but actually going and uh, making contacts with um, guerrillas in 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 the Jordanian camps, it would have been at this time most likely. And also with respect to the Mujahideen, we see a number so a number of their militants actually going to Oman to participate and support um, the various Marxist-Leninist groups in Dufar, basically fighting against and trying to overthrow the Sultan in in Oman. So we do see kind of like lots of these kind of militant opposition groups actually going abroad and actually some of them then would go subsequently to Lebanon. Um, they would actually participate in sort of struggles actually against um, the Israelis following the beginning of the uh, Lebanese civil war and actually begin to receive training. And it was sort of both sort of religious nationalists, but also some of those who would go on to establish the Revolutionary Guards um, following the revolution. So it's kind of like um, sort of in a sense, the, the, the lexicon of armed struggle, you know, it kind of encompassed a broad range of people, both sort of Marxist-Leninists or various who's the Maoists of certain description, sort of religious nationalists, Islamists, uh, pro-Khomeini forces. I mean, you know, there were very many sort of laying claim to this kind of as a kind of legitimate, as a way to legitimate their own struggle, their role in the struggle. Also, there was often a competition of how many people actually died as a result, how many martyrs you gave to the struggle. This is very much a kind of the dominant frame. But what I wanted to stress is that a lot of these actually come out of the National Front, actually, or somehow associated with the National Front, or try to actually um, sort of find a role uh, in the National Front. And then when that sort of is a dead end, they are increasingly radicalized. Some of them did have more radical politics, some less so. But that kind of sort of impasse is, I think, absolutely decisive. Um, and I think it's important to say that it begins in the early 60s, like, you know, in, like from the mid 60s, really, because it's not a matter of the guerrillas simply deciding, oh, yes, we're going to adopt armed struggle. And then the Shah is sort of brutally kind of um, repressing in response to that. The reason why the armed struggle emerges is because of the degree of repression which preceded that. But I would say that post-71, yeah, the level of repression does increase uh, significantly and the brutality of the Savak also does increase like markedly. And that was uh, in response to the guerrilla struggle. But I would also say that the guerrillas were actually quite aware that by launching kind of guerrilla struggle, that the regime would basically respond like with absolute sort of um, with with you know with dramatic uh, and sort of really kind of severe um, violence um, and that it would become increasingly very much more repressive so they were very much aware of this and that was actually part of the idea that the, the true nature of this regime which was a repressive dependent capitalist dictatorship you know we would actually by by engaging in armed struggle we would be exposing what is really essential to this regime 
And really kind of the, the increased repression was simply just an intensification of what it, what it was, what it really was, what this regime was. And then when the regime finally was kind of compelled to slightly kind of liberalise and open up, this would then create conditions in which there could be a mass mobilisation against it as people were even more alienated, more frustrated, more angered by the kind of the conduct of the regime and how it policed the shutdown um, dissent. So I would say, well, on the face of it, Siakau was a, actually a big, was a, was a, was very much unsuccessful, quote unquote. In some sense, that kind of theory, you could say it did actually, it does make sense. And you could say in a sense, what happened in 77 subsequently did kind of play out as some of them had actually foreseen it would play out. But going back to your original question way back when about the balance of forces, yeah, I mean, the Islamists were definitely not repressed uh, in a way in which the leftists were. The leftists were absolutely decapitated. I mean, the, the two day from sort of the late 50s onwards, I mean, post-53, but then the late, 50, the late 50s completely. And really, you know, many of their leading lights were all basically living in um, East Germany for decades, completely kind of detached from uh, realities on the ground. Um, whereas many of the leading lights of the of the Fado guerrillas were yeah either executed or killed in actually fighting um, the security forces, or they were actually imprisoned and tortured to death, as Ahmad Zadeh was. So in sum, I mean, one thing that really does help explain the balance of forces by the time you reach the revolution is that on the one hand, while Islamist forces, particularly those sort of in the more traditional um, sort of sectors of society, or those associated with the clergy, the bazaar, the network of mosques, um, Hosseiniers, while many were sort of traditionalist and apolitical, there was still very much a network in uh, effect. And actually, Khomeini, before he leaves the country, was very kind of, he wasn't only just a, he didn't, it wasn't only like an intellectual and a religious figure, he actually was a quite a strong organiser in this respect and had many lieutenants that he delegated kind of authority to inside the country to, um, basically to build up this network of support amongst all this, infra- this religious infrastructure of mosques, Hosseiniers, where Shia Muslims mourn the Prophet, and throughout the entirety of the country, whereas the left um, from the Tudor party, including the Mujahideen, these sort of lay, um, this lay Islamist group, as well as the Fadoi guerrillas and so on and so forth, really they were either completely decapitated um, and then sent into exile, or the leading cadres who uh, turned to armed struggle, um, they were predominantly killed um, or in jail or executed in jail on occasion. So, you know, um, this was, I think this actually is really, really important just to stress, because that also just explains a lot of the reasons why the left was, you know, had weak organisational capacity by the time we hit sort of 1977, 78, and following the amnesty and release of prisoners. You both laid out how the repression of the left empowered Khomeini and the Islamists to play a dominant role in the revolutionary process. But but how then did they ultimately seize absolute control over the revolutionary government and violently repress their revolutionary rivals as as the revolution shifted into the provisional Islamic revolutionary government and then to the Islamic Republic? Why? Why were they the party that won out and how, how did they do it? So as I've been as we've been saying, the Islamists in many ways were in a stronger position. They were very much primed and uh, already um, mobilized. Um, but I do think that, you know, there are various reasons and various um, explanations for why the Islamists were ultimately able to 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 sort of outmaneuver 
their rivals. So I would say on the one hand that Khomeini's kind of brand of Islamism, a kind of, you could say, Islamic sort of populism, uh, where he co-opted many sort of elements of the left's agenda on the surface of it. So talking about the Mosasafans of the oppressed as opposed to like the working class. So he basically, you know, very much took over the lexicon language of Marxism, some sort of key to key words, and then reprised them in a Quranic sort of uh, lexicon. So he very much looked like, you know, radical redistribution. He talked about sort of free, um, free gas. He talked about sort of very much that a lot of the ailments and inequalities of the present order will absolutely be um, dissipated, will be completely eradicated. But in terms of, you know, they were also, as I've been trying to say, very kind of um, organizationally um, savvy, very, very capable. And this was obviously because, you know, by the time of the revolution, um, many of the second forces also had, in a sense, bowed to, uh, Khomeini's leadership. They didn't necessarily know, um, they didn't know exactly what he had in store or the political order he had in mind, but they couldn't deny his, you know, his kind of, his preeminent um, role by virtue of his um, sort of religious status as a kind of an ayatollah, uh, a marriage attack lead, someone that Shia Muslims actually, whose their legal rulings imitate. Um, the fact that he his sort of his role in the struggle, the bravery he had been showing for the last fifteen years against the the Shah's regime and denouncing it, um, so his position was very very clear. Uh, and many of the circular forces, such as the National Front, um, such as the Liberation uh, Movement of Iran, had basically accepted his authority um, as sort of the leader of, of the revolution. And he absolutely capitalised on this. So once he actually returns to Iran in February of nineteen seventy nine. You know, he basically appoints a, initiates a, a system of dual power, really, or a parallel form of government to parallel that of the provisional government of Mehdi Bazargan, who is appointed prime minister, who he also appoints and sets up. Because on the one hand, the clergy needed these kind of educated, um, uh, you could say, respectable uh, technocrats um, who had some knowledge of government and government administration. But at the same time, he creates a parallel system. So he sets up, for instance, a revolutionary council um, who he appoints all of the members. And they really are making many of the major day-to-day policy um, decisions in this period. Um, also, in the course of the revolution, we see the sprouting up of, you know, uh, flurry, a sort of a burgeoning kind of committees where people sort of, you know, the revolution committees taking control of streets, neighborhoods, while, you know, as order, in a sense, has started to dissolve and a new order is being established. We see all of these kind of committees, you know, sort of burgeoning throughout the country. And it does take a little bit of time, but gradually the Islamists sort of put their imprint on all of these committees and steadily take kind of control on them. We also see the constitution of the Islamic Republic Party. You know, they don't have 2020 vision, you know, and they don't and they, they're not clairvoyant and they don't they don't have really a clear idea that they'll be able to impose sort of the, their vision of the Islamic State. They're still very much in this process of struggling uh, and seeing, you know, how much support and grassroots support they actually have. But very much this is the, this is the ideologically at this point, they, they do have this line, but they're just not sure whether they can actually um, realise it. We also see a kind of a paramilitary um, component here where out of these sort of militias, Islamist militias, uh, which are kind of spontaneously emerged in various parts of the country, actually, uh, and acknowledge Khomeini as the as the sort of preeminent leader. They steadily begin to emerge and form what is basically called as the Pasaran, or the you know the sort of the guardians of the revolution, the the revolutionary guards. And we also see other groups, so like the Mujahideen Organization of the Islamic Revolution, uh, as is sort of like taking its name 
you know, or basically taking the name of the Mujahideen to try and delegitimize the people's Mujahideen, which is seen as kind of very ambivalent on the question of clerical leadership um, and very much saying, you know, we are committed to Khomeini's leadership here and mobilizing to neutralize and ultimately decapitate um, the threat which they believed was posed by the Mujahideen. So just in short, I mean, what we see very quickly, all of the actors here are really trying to figure what the heck is going on. Khomeini himself doesn't have quite an idea of what he's ultimately going to be able to achieve here, but he's very, you know, he's very intuitive. Um, he has this like really kind of strong po- popular sensibility of where and how he can actually move people towards um, and his agenda, while at the same time, you know, instituting in a very kind of systematic and considered fashion this kind of parallel system of government to consolidate the Islamist, the pro Khomeini Islamist hold on the state. Brilliant. Gomer? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Essie touched on a lot of the really important points. Um, I think this is honestly a hard question to answer in in brief, and it has a lot of different avenues that you can you can look at. I think one of the important things to consider is just the last several months before the fall of the Shah in 1978 and 70. Well, the the Shah leaves the country in January of 1979, and the year before that had been marked by protests and escalating um, mass protests that were, in some sense, their their conceptual universe was, was drawn from this revolutionary Shia Islam that we, we might say had some of its most popular and most popularizing form in the thought of Ali Shariati. But of course, Khomeini himself was also a master of this, of sort of rethinking terms and ideas drawn from revolutionary leftisms and putting them into Shia idiom. But the revolution itself temporarily kind of starts to happen on a Shia clock. Uh, Beginning in January of 1978, one of the main newspapers in Iran, this state-run newspapers, um, publishes this piece that is basically an anti-Ulema, anti-Khomeini piece. It it accuses Khomeini of being um, a former British spy, of working with communists, of working with, yeah, working with the British, of writing erotic poetry. And it also accuses, again, in the language that is first kind of circulating in the time of the white revolution, accuses the ulama of being part of black reaction. So if the white revolution pits itself against red revolution, it also pits itself against what it calls black reaction, and the ulama represent part of that but it uses that language again, and this is just incenses Khomeini's supporters. Protests erupt in Rome, the seminaries are closed, thousands of people take to the streets, and there's basically the government responds in force, and there's a massacre. And this sets off a series of protests um, marking every 40 days after that initial set of uh, uh, that initial massacre. We're seeing that timeline again, uh, where we just marked the 40th day after the Islamic Republic killed. Uh, Masa Amini. The 40th day after a loved one's death is a moment of mourning for, for, for Muslims. So this was very masterfully politicized um, as a way that protesters could know when the protests were happening without having to communicate um, in channels that might be compromised, right? So this is a way that everyone can just know what the next protest is without, yeah, like without having to think about security culture. There are several protests. This continues to escalate. More people are killed. Another 40 days. 
More people are killed. Another 40-day protest happens. And this, again, I think kind of conceptually marks something about the nature of Khomeini's leadership, about the Islamicity of this of this movement. Um, and the Shah eventually... Um, you know, manages through the sort of repression of these of this movement to even alienate modern, uh, I'm sorry, uh, alienate um, moderates among the clerics, most prominently a uh, figure by the name of Shariat Madari, uh, Ayatollah Shariat Madari, who's really an, an opponent of Khomeini in many ways, but, and a more moderate figure. But after some of the worst of the government repression in the aftermath of this this event in September, which is called Black Friday, where the government like really turns its forces against protesters, including helicopters shooting down at people, and just hundreds of people are uh, injured and killed. Even Shariat Maudari says the leader of this revolution is Khomeini. So there's consolidation among even these oppose, opposing clerical factions, right? That may have at an earlier point in 76 or 77, if the Shah had instantiated an effort to sort of make peace with those people, might have been able to curtail some of the, the radicalizing among young seminary students. Of course, that might not have also, I mean, I we can't, we can do what ifs, but we don't know. There's also these huge strikes among industrial workers, among um, oil refinery workers. Um, and again, this is a big part of the lead up to the revolution. Um, but Khomeini himself is is from from exile. He is in a position to speak very freely on, on, and to really exhort revolutionaries to further, to go back out onto the streets. At one point, it actually looks like the moderating factions might have a chance. Um, in early, in the early part of the summer of 78, Shariat Madwari says, okay, well, we should go we should go home and start to have conversations about how to make the Shah do what he promises, which is kind of liberalize further. And Khomeini says, no, no, let's keep protesting. But people don't mark the next 40th day. So for a moment, it seems like, you know, the uh, the prime minister at the time says, oh, the crisis is over. We can all move on. It's through more repression and eventually, as I said, Black Friday, that even these moderating influences within the clerical classes are like, no, in fact, Khomeini's the leader, the absolute undisputed leader of this movement. There's too much momentum. He's too popular among ordinary people. He's popular among the seminary students. And they're pushed by their own, by semi, you know, by the more radical younger students in the seminaries who are pushing these more moderate or more apolitical or more sort of conciliatory forces among the, the higher ranking clergy. You know, they're kind of swept up in, in, in this pressure. Similarly, I think it, we cannot overemphasize the legacy and the memory of the 1953 coup, um, which at least at the moment, the first several months after the fall of the Shah and the, and the coming to power of the Islamic Republic in, 19, in February of 79, there is real worry about um, another coup. Um, this is what leads in part to students um, Islamist students who are calling themselves the students in the line of the imam to um, occupy the American embassy in November of 1979 and eventually sort of keep it occupied for the next 444 days. And uh, again, there is this kind of, there are those forces who are calling for some kind of compromise. The people in the provisional government under Bozargon, in fact, resign um, when Khomeini puts his support with the with the hostage takers, with the embassy um, occupying uh, students. But they are sort of overwhelmed by the liberal Muslim um, faction under Bozargan and the provisional government is overwhelmed by the sort of revolutionary mood of the time, which is not in the mood for conciliation. I think it's also the memory of 53 is important in the sense that 
at the very end, you know, at the very end, um, the Shah appoints um, a figure by the name of Shah Bakhtiar, Bakhtiar, who had once been, who had been a part of the National Front and had come out of the Mossadegh's tradition. Of course, he's booted from the front for for working with the Shah because, again, no one's in the mood for conciliation at this point. Revolution is pretty much the goal, um, overwhelmingly. But so the Shah attempts to appoint Bakhtiar. And, the, and Khomeini, when he comes back, appoints Bazargan, who himself had been a veteran of the Mossadegh um, political coalition, albeit on the Muslim, you know, of the Muslim nationalists who are uh, sort of allying themselves with, with Mossadegh. And I think you see something about the continued both political legitimacy conferred on, on these figures by their association with Mossadegh and the idea that legitimacy that that was the last moment of political legitimacy is is attempted to be kind of used by both the new Khomeini's faction and the the Shah's sort of last-ditch efforts to stay in power. So I think that Khomeini at this moment, um, you know, he's sort of stating that he's going to go to Qom and not be part of politics and so forth. But as even in 1970, he had been giving speeches about the concept of the guardianship of the jurist and the Islamic government. So it's not as though he just thought of those things like in, you know, late 1979. He had been thinking about those things. But, you know, the debate about this is whether he was biding his time, whether he didn't think that it would be popular, that he had the popular standing to kind of uh, move forward with this, whether he thought, okay, we'll work with the Islamist technocrats like Bazargan and the members of the liberation movement, or, you know, exactly what the sort of the conceptualization at this moment was. But in 1979, there's very much this revolutionary mood across different sectors of society. Even when Khomeini tells striking workers to go home, in some cases they, they don't, you know. So, so there is just this, the, the, the first time that the, there is an effort at taking the American embassy happens just a few days after the success of the revolution. And initially those people are sent home. In November when it happens again, Khomeini gives his explicit support and he uses it as a way to sort of yeah, cleanse the, clean the government of the li- more liberalizing forces among the sort of Islamic coalition. So pretty much at every every point, there is some degree of Khomeini simply outmaneuvering his a- opponents. Part of it is the institutional support power of the of the mosque networks that Eskandar noted. Part of it is the the ways in which the legacy of 1953 plays out. Um, we see this even in this big March eighth protest for uh, this big women International Women's Day protest that happens um, after Khomeini announces that women have to wear the veil to places of work. There's this huge protest of mostly women, um, Women's Day protest against it. And, and he sort of walks it back uh, in the aftermath of several days of protests. There's real disagreement on even among the leftists and liberals about what to do about this protest. I mean, most of the protesters are themselves leftists and liberals. They're women um, who are part of those movements. But there's real hand-wringing about the necessity to have a kind of unified a unified front against imperialism, against um, the potential for another coup. And you see in this moment um, real fissure uh, about how to approach, approach questions like that. And uh, sort of even among the leftists, a dissatisfaction or a, or a suspicion of the liberal Muslim camp that is uh, exemplified by Bozargan, uh, because they were they saw him as somebody who was going to try to take a conciliatory posture to the U.S. or you know work with within the kind of imperialist framework. 
So yeah, that, that 1953 legacy plays out in a lot of really important ways here. What was Khomeini's concept of clerical rule or, or, or rule of the Islamic jurist? Just, just how novel was it given the quietest and monarchist history of the Iranian clergy? And then what role did a particular gender order play in Khomeini's theory of Islamic rule? So the uh, concept, the notion of the guardianship of the Islamic jurist um, isn't an entirely new one. Uh, it's, not in, it's actually not new in um, Shia jurisprudence, but it had a very limited uh, parameters. So it really was, it really gave supervision, the clergy, a clergyman, supervision over orphans, um, those who were um, incapacitated in some way. And that was actually, generally speaking, the remit of this sort of the Velayat of Fari, the guardianship of the jurist. Um, it's in the, really the 19th century. I mean, there are earlier kind of iterations of this, but um, we could say perhaps it's best known in the, in the 19th century, where uh, a particular clergyman by the name of Mullah Ahmad Narogi tries to carve out a kind of almost like an executive political role for the clergy. Um, but I would say this is still a very marginal idea. So actually the leading kind of Shia authorities throughout you know, the 19th century actually had a very kind of restrictive um, understanding of the clergy's political remit and role. Um, I mean, it didn't have this political... Um, tenor to it um, whatsoever. And but Khomeini obviously has this series, when he's in exile in Najaf in um, southern Iraq, he gives a series of lectures on this sort of the guardianship of the Islamic jurists. And it's actually just a series of lectures. It wasn't actually initially a tract, but it is um, subsequently published in Beirut and other places as a, as a tract, as almost a manifesto um, for clerical rule. And in that book, I mean, he gives a number of possibilities. He doesn't say that a single cleric should necessarily rule. He also gives the sort of possibility of almost like a council of clergymen ruling. And one of the things that's actually interesting when you sort of put it in a larger kind of history and clerical criticisms and debates of this idea, actually a lot of clerics actually don't think it has any grounding in um, Jafari, like Shia jurisprudence, actually. And I think this is why earlier I wanted to kind of um, point to uh, Khomeini's quite heterodox education and socialization in a sense, because the fact that he was most grounded in Neoplatonic um, philosophy, I think you could make a strong case that um, his kind of guardianship of the jury is sort of say is very much akin to the Platonic, almost like philosopher king. Because I mean, the basic argument, very basically put, is Sharia law. In order to execute Sharia law, you have to have a state. Sharia law, basically, in a sense, you're um, leaving a huge part of of Sharia law in abeyance unless you have a state and executing certain um, Islamic edicts uh, in this way. Um, But then the question is, like, who interprets the law? Who is the interpreter? That's like the key kind of question. Who is interpreting in a sense what what God's will is in the form of the Sharia? And that's obviously the clergy. They are the ones who, by virtue of their knowledge of the law, Islamic law, uh, are entitled to have this right. And it says almost like he he often refers to it in terms of almost like an obligation 
to rule and lead the Ummah, the you know the Islamic, the Muslim community, to live in accordance and in the image of God's will. Even when you look at actually the way in which he argues it, it's very much in the form of something like, what's like a syllogistic argument. So like, sorry, if we want to execute Islamic law, then we need an Islamic state. Who interprets the law? It is the clergy. Therefore, we need the clergy to rule the Islamic state. And this is sort of the, the structure of the argument. And then he goes on to actually to you know, substantiate it and such. But, you know, it's actually quite in terms of based on hadith, so basically the sayings and deeds of the prophet and um, the imams and the companions and so on, it's actually very weak in that regard. Um, and a lot of actually Shia clergymen have argued that this actually comes out of like um, uh, Sunni modernism, this argument, and it's adapted. And actually one thing that's also just, just another side point, and I will actually truly end here, but um, he might have been reading people like Rashid Reda and sort of various sort of uh, um, early sort of Sunni modernists and proto-Islamists, you could say. Um, and then his, his sort of the younger cohort of clergy were also very much part of this broader global kind of Islamist um, conversation. So Ayatollah Khamenei, who's now the current Supreme Leader, was reading like and translating um, Islamist ideologues like Said Qutb, um, the sort of the 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 Egyptian radical Islamist so, who turns up in any sort of history of you know quote, jihadism or radical Islamist radicalism he's sort of seen as sort of the Godfather so they were very much reading people like Qutb, uh, Maududi in Pakistan um, and so on but Khomeini um, you know he he's I think this uh, when we want to understand the guardianship of the jurists I think probably the Platonic philosopher Kings is a good analogy but it's like the Islamist kind of iteration of that wow that is fascinating. An interesting thing is that Shariati, in his life in the early 70s, um, when some of the clerics whom he's criticizing criticize him back, they call him a crypto-Sunni, too, for some... Um, Wahhabi, too. Yeah, a Wahhabi, a Wahhabi, exactly, that he is bringing these kind of traditions and ways of thinking about Islam that are not indigenous to Shiism, to Iranian Shiism, into the conversation um, and confusing listeners, Yeah. I did not know that that really that all really blew my mind. What role did a particular gender order play in Khomeini's theory of the rule of the Islamic jurist? And what role did that gender order play in the popular reception of Khomeini's politics? Yeah. So in the conceptualization of the guardianship of the jurist, I mean, it's very clearly entirely uh, patriarchal male concept of who is going to be part of not only who is the jurist who will uh, have sort of final guardianship. And as, as Eskandar mentioned, Khomeini himself um, flirted with the idea of a group of jurists, even at the time of the um, sort of debates about the constitution, there are some who believe in the but think it should be more than one person. So there are different sort of iterations of how this might look. Of course, it's assumed that it will be a man because what's imagined is the preconditions for being able to enjoy this status is, you know, you have to have a very high ranking uh, status and be a marja taglid, a source of emulation and have a sort of uh, gone through the process of gaining the highest status of, of jurisprudential knowledge. And this was a male field. So on the very, very basic level, yeah, this is, it's very clear that there is a gendered dynamic here, that in the unelected parts of the government, including the jurist, including what eventually is these unelected bodies that we can talk more about when we're talking about the post-revolutionary government, 
that these are all going to be high-ranking clerics, and high-ranking clerics are by definition men. At the same time, there are certain new or novel conceptualizations of revolutionary womanhood that Khomeini absolutely plays with and emphasizes and talks about. He recognizes and um, discusses directly the role of women as part of the revolutionary upheaval. This is also of a piece, um, in a sense, with other revolutionary um, Muslim thinkers, including Shariati, um, who had sort of conceptualized a new Islamic woman in the tradition or in the image of these important, these extremely important women in the Shia tradition, particularly Fatima. So Khomeini takes that discourse up to, to some extent. That, and there are, of course, it's extremely important. We didn't talk about this when we were talking about the guerrillas, but in all of these different new revolutionary political parties, revolutionary guerrilla organizations, revolutionary sort of groups that are emerging in the 78, 79 moment, women are a big part of all of those different groups on the Islamist side, on the leftist side, among the liberals, um, on the industrial strikes. There's women in leadership important uh, positions uh, across the board here. So women see themselves as part of the revolution. And I mentioned before that, you know, there isn't really a serious kind of conversation about rolling back the women's right to vote. And I think that you see in a way the engagement of women in the revolutionary process is tacitly or explicitly in some cases understood as a part of the revolutionary upheaval that brings Khomeini to power by Khomeini himself, insofar as he is not talking about rolling back certain women's rights. Um, at the same time, yeah, this is an extremely gendered vision of the world. Right away, he tries to uh, mandate veiling in places of work and government buildings. He says that women should no longer be going into their work naked. That's the language he uses after which there is, as I said, this big March 8th rally, which makes Khomeini sort of, at least momentarily, walk back um, this veiling edict. It takes some time to impose this new uh, sort of gendered physical space, gendered public space. You know, from conversations I've had with older Iranians, depending on where they were in province, in a city where they worked, if it was a government job or not, there's plenty of indication that women weren't all made to veil. The, the sort of veiling edict didn't fully sort of take hold across the country until even 82, 83 in some cases. So this is not a overnight process of sort of disenfranchising women who had become part of the political process. But there is clearly this, this the small group of revolutionary clerics who are by definition they don't include women and women who are in judiciary roles and so forth lose their jobs, you know, immediately as the as the judiciary structure, uh, the government attempts to clericalize it, you know, take out all of the secular jurists and put in clerics, uh, Shia clerics. That also takes several years. So part of the question is that it unfolds over time in a way that makes it so that at different moments, different snapshots of moments would will give you a different view of what the what is happening in terms of gender. But there is still evidence that there are at least some women in the Islamic Republic who support the government, right? So we have to con continue to think about other kinds of nexus of social difference. So your relationship to the government as a woman might be different if you're, you know, in terms of class, um, ethnic minorities versus ethnic minorities. You know, it's, it's of course true that the major clerical figures in the small revolutionary council that Khomeini appoints are all 
obviously they're clerics and they're men, but they're also all from Persian speaking backgrounds. That's something that we talk about a little bit less because it's not, I think, immediately visible to people outside of the country who is, you know, because we're, you know, in here we might hear everything in translation. But the the handful of the main people who are, um, or I should say, the main people who are Khomeini's lieutenants, I'm thinking of Mutahari, Beheshti, Khomeini, Rafsanjani, they're from Persian speaking backgrounds. And so your vision of gender would also have to take into account a kind of robust understanding of social difference and power, including things like ethnic background, class, region. Um, so there is right away an uprising um, in Iranian Kurdistan, and that includes Kurdish women. But their uprising is as, as Kurdish women, emphasizing all of that. And in fact, um, some of the few pe- communities that we know voted against the referendum for the Islamic Republic were some of the ethnic, you know, in the Kurdish region, there was not widespread support, even though those people are Muslim too, right? So, so all of these different sort of components of social difference go into the way in which people conceptualize themselves as part of the government. So on the one hand, you have definitely a new conceptualization of revolutionary womanhood. On the other hand, you have a completely patriarchal government structure as imagined and then eventually uh, put into place by the Islamic Republic. And then, yeah, I've run out of hands, but then you also have the mere fact, the sheer fact of women as part of the political process that is something that you can't put back into the bottle once it's out. And the social programs enacted by the Islamic Republic, including continued sort of emphasis on social welfare, health, uh, access to health care, access to literacy. These, these are programs that help some women uh, sort of improve their quality of life, even as the government is otherwise repressing uh, women in terms of their ability to be part of public life. Kind of building on what you were saying, just maybe just like maybe just again, just uh, emphasizing it was... Um this question of like uh, state feminism in a sense. So for, obviously with the, you know, with the revolution, um, you know, the whole sort of ray of demands uh, in a sense resurfacing after years and years of repression and Kurdish demands for political and cultural autonomy, a parliament of their own and so on. And um, I'm basically speaking to an agenda for decentralization because as we've been speaking about, you know, it, the Pahlavi project was, and, and the Islamic Republic consequently built on this, it's very much about centralization, expanding the central state and so on. So we see Kurdish demands very much calling for, cultural autonomy, reviving many of the demands which which we saw in the uh, Mahabad Republic of 1946. Um, we see the return to the, the national scene, like key figures like Abdul Rahman Qasim Lu, who was very much a, a Kurdish socialist. He was the head of the Kurdish Democratic Party of Iran. We see um, figures like Sheikh um, Izzadina Hussein, who, uh, Husseini, um, who, um, you know, was a very kind of outspoken, critical um, cleric who were very, very clear that, they, you know, they were going to push for um, cultural autonomy within the broad bounds of a democratic Iran. And actually the key slogan of Ghassan Lu was, you know, democracy for Iran, autonomy for Kurdistan. Um, but very, very quickly, we see kind of conflict emerge from like March of 79. So if you think the revolution happens in February, literally within a couple of weeks, um, we see conflict between the Peshmerga in Kurdistan in places like Mahabad and Sanandaj, San which, you know, is quickly, very quickly repressed by uh, the central government, by the emerging revolutionary guards. Um, it's also where we see um, in sort of really infamous individuals like Sadiq Khalkhali, the infamous hanging judge who would go on to execute scores and scores and scores of Kurdish activists and militants. Um, there are various attempts in this period by the provisional government to try and mediate. Um, and yeah, like Golna was saying, 
the Kurds, along with a number of left-wing groups, actually reject the referendum because they understand it. This sort of this call for an Islamic republic: Are you for it? Are you for basically? Uh, are you not? As being in a sense consolidating um, a sort of a Shia Persian-centric clerically-led order, which they very, very kind of viscerally understand is going to be detrimental to their interests. So, in response to that referendum, which happens in April '79, they say, you know, no referendum, self-determination. And again, this then unleashes a new period of um, bloody repression. So I think this is just a really important just to stress, even though I'm not doing full justice to it, that both the Kurdish question, the Kurdish national question, is immediately, very early, within a month of the revolution, we see it being repressed. And also the question of women, where we see the sort of the you know, mandatory hijab being kind of steadily uh, imposed by self and intimidation and terror um, in Tehran and other major cities uh, and elsewhere. So these two, sort of both the Kurdish national question and women, are kind of bellwethers of the shape and the course that the, um, the revolutionary consolidation of the Islamist sort of order is going to take. That was part three of my interview with Eskandar Siddiqui, Borajerdi, and Gulnar Nikpur. Stay tuned as our last episode on the history of modern Iran is released over the coming week. Eskander Siddiqui Borajerdi is a professor of contemporary politics and modern history of the Middle East at Goldsmiths College, University of London, and the author of Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran. Golnar Nikpur is a professor of history at Dartmouth College with an interest in histories of law, incarceration, and rights in modern Iran, and is currently finishing her first book project, A History of Iranian Prisons and Carcerality in a Global Context. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, anybody who knows anything about history knows that great social changes are impossible without the feminine ferment. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. But this episode was edited by Liza Yeager and Mitchell Johnson. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Riofrancos and Ben Maybe. A really big thanks to Nushin Samini and Sara Hassani for helping out so much preparing this series. And also to Eskandar and Golnar. Putting this whole thing together has been a very, very collaborative operation. Thank you. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling people you know to listen to the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. <laughs>